Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Morning, everyone. We are so glad you're with us. We have a lot of news to get to this morning, yeah. for sure. So let's start with five things to know for this Thursday. May the 4th, 2023, this breaking news just in, Russia now baselessly accusing America of being behind the drone attack on the Kremlin. Ukraine denies any involvement in that. We've called the White House and the Pentagon. We're waiting for their reaction. Also, another regional bank might be in trouble this morning as shares of PacWest are plunging more than 50 percent after a report suggested the bank could be seeking a sale. Also, police in Atlanta have now arrested overnight the gunman accused of shooting five people, five women, inside a medical center. One of them was killed. The suspect was caught after an hours-long manhunt. Also, special counsel Jack Smith is looking into how the Trump organization handled surveillance footage from Mar-a-Lago. Sources tell CNN this has led to a new round of subpoenas to top Trump employees. And may the 4th be with you, Star Wars Princess Leia, the late Carrie Fisher, will get a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame today. CNN This Morning starts right now. Star Wars fan? Um... I want to be supposed to say, I, I, I can say that I have not seen Star Wars. Can you believe it? I don't want to admit. Okay, I'm not well, say, I'm, I'm admitting not it for way. both of us. I'm so, but I've always loved her, and I'm glad to see her honored in this yeah. way. Um, but let's get to the breaking news, because this just coming in, Russia is now accusing the United States of being behind that drone attack we told you about yesterday on the Kremlin. Vladimir Putin's spokesman just made that accusation without any evidence, by the way, to back it up. This was during a phone call that he had with journalists. He claims the U.S., quote, dictates such decisions to Kyiv. The Ukrainians have flat out denied any involvement in that drone attack. But overnight, we saw Russia unleash a wave of its own drones on Kyiv and other Ukrainian cities. They had handwritten messages on them that read for the Kremlin and for Moscow. So let's go to our senior international security correspondent, Nick Peyton Walsh. He's on the ground live in Dnipro, Ukraine. Nick, the concern yesterday, right, after this news from Russia blaming Ukraine for these drones, now they're blaming America, was, is this a pretext for Russia to take further action? Yeah, and so far overnight, we have not seen uh, marked escalation. It's been bad night by night for the past four to five days across Ukraine from missile and drone attacks, and it seems to have been the same level. We saw a lot of drones taken out of the sky by air defence systems. But let's just go back to these extraordinary comments from the Kremlin. No end, it seems, the kind of escalation we're seeing from Moscow. Yesterday, saying Ukraine tried to assassinate their president in the seat of government. Now today, again without evidence, 
saying that Washington essentially told them to do it. Let me give you the quote from Dmitry Peskov, uh, the Kremlin spokesperson, a call with reporters. Such attempts to disown this in Kiev and Washington are, of course, absolutely ridiculous. We are well aware that decisions on such actions and such terrorist attacks are not made in Kiev, but in Washington. And Kiev is already executing what it is told to do. Part, I think, generally speaking, of a narrative from Russia as the war for them here in Ukraine gets worse and worse of trying to persuade to the Russian population that essentially they're fighting the rest of the world. They're fighting NATO. They're fighting all of the NATO alliance backed by the enormity of the US military. This perhaps plays into this too, but my gosh, how we into very high escalatory stakes here. Not only uh, are they said that the country they're at war with has tried to kill their president, uh, at the same time they're saying Washington told them to do it. I should point out again, we are very thin on evidence about this. We're told that uh, Vladimir Putin is in the Kremlin working today, that he has remained calm since what Moscow called an attempt on his life, and that the minimal damage that some suggested may have been done to the Kremlin by the explosion that was seen on a video, well, that's actually being fixed. It's two copper plates that are being redone. So frankly, even if this was an assassination attempt, it didn't seem to bring an awful lot of explosive to even damage the roof that it landed on one of the drones there. The real emphasis on the Kremlin to come up with the evidence here to provide some kind of uh, proof of what they're talking about. Right. The drones, exactly what was hit, where they thought it may have come from. And that's something they're saying they're going to leave for a later moment for now. Look, we're going to have John Kirby from the White House on this program this morning. Obviously, questions for them, but there's no evidence provided here by Russia of this baseless claim. Before you go, President Zelensky is at The Hague. He's going to visit the International Criminal Court. This is just a few months after they called for Putin's arrest on war crimes. What, what is the impact of this meeting? Look, it's extraordinary to see Vladimir Zelensky, and there's a wonderful quote where he says basically he'd like the other Vladimir to be there, not him. He says again that he wants to see this war come to an end and see Vladimir Putin on trial. That, in fact, was part of his reaction to being accused of having tried to kill Putin or being part of the head of the government that tried to do that. He just said he wanted to see Putin in The Hague. And the symbolism of the tour that we've seen Zelensky do yesterday going to Finland, the newest member of NATO, right along Russia's border. Order. And then today in The Hague, the place where uh, so much uh, of the Western alliance that's uh, trying to assist Ukraine here wants to see Vladimir Putin faced a uh, trial for the mass deportation of, of children. Startling symbolism there, particularly as we're expecting Ukraine's counteroffensive to more publicly, perhaps, is the best way to say it, get underway. Back to you. It certainly is. Nick Payton Walsh, thank you for that reporting from Dnipro, Ukraine. As I mentioned in the 8 o'clock hour, we'll talk to, uh, about all of this and this breaking news that we just reported with the White House's John Kirby. He'll be live here at the table. Also this morning, there are new developments in the investigation into a string of stabbings in less than a week near the University of California, Davis. You can see here just how close each of these three attacks were. They left two men dead and a woman seriously injured. The Sacramento Bee is reporting that the police have been questioning a person of interest Big questions still remain. The person was found about a block away from where that second stabbing happened that you saw there on the map of that location. The police spokesman says that the person voluntarily went to officers, went with officers to the police headquarters, but they are cautioning this person has not been yet linked to any of the stabbings. Police are also announcing that investigators have collected biological evidence from those three crime scenes 
Right now, still, no suspects have been publicly identified. Well, another regional bank is showing signs of trouble this morning. PacWest Bank, you probably know it. It's well known. It confirms a Bloomberg News report that it's weighing what they're calling strategic options, including a possible sale. And that's now raising a lot of questions about whether PacWest will be the next bank to potentially go under following the collapse of three other Significant regional banks, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and then First Republic on Monday morning. This news sent PacWest stock tumbling down more than 50 percent after hours trading yesterday. Our chief business correspondent, Christy Romans, is here with more. What's going on? Well, so the bank actually yesterday released a statement saying, you know, look, we haven't seen a big outflow of deposits. Things look just as good today as they did last week when they reported earnings. This is a case, I think, of when you hear strategic options um, that's like an SOS in Wall Street lingo, right? And so looking to buy a, find a buyer, you know, just what is the situation for this bank? They say they have, I think, 75% of their deposits are now insured. That's up a little bit from recently. So there isn't anything materially new about this bank, but it is the nervousness on Wall Street. It means investors are selling it. So the stock is down 38%, 50% at one point this morning. You can see that big dive there. That is right before SVB collapsed. So you can see regional banks in this bank has had a really hard time kind of finding its footing um, uh, since that happened. The bank has not experienced out-of-the-ordinary deposit flows following the sale of First Republic Bank and other news. That's what the bank said last night. But in the eyes of Wall Street traders, I guess it doesn't matter. They've been um, selling this stock here. We know the FDIC has stepped in before. They're looking for a buyer here. The company says that it is looking at strategic options. So we'll see if pieces of this bank could be sold. One one thing that's interesting to me is that this is the interest rate story, right? Um, Mm -hmm. As interest rates have risen, the value of its investments um, has gone down. And if you mark those to market, you know, it shows some weakness on the books. And they're rising again. We heard that from Jay Powell yesterday, but it might be the last time for now, right? The pause patrol, right? Uh, Yeah. Oh, that was clever. All the parents watching know know. exactly what you're talking about. Can we sing the song? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Pause patrol. No, I'm just kidding. um, A little bit of pause patrol. Yeah. Uh, They raised uh, 25 basis points the 10th time in a row, but signaling, I think, that they're going to wait to see what happens next here. It is really remarkable to raise interest rates again on a week when you still have bank stress. And you had a bank failure last week, you know, in First Republic or or Monday morning with First Republic. So it is a very interesting moment here, I think, with after a year of interest rate hikes, borrowing costs going up for all Americans. You know, your credit card debt is very dangerous still, folks, and is going to get even more expensive. Uh, And that's all in the engineering to try to... um, slow down the U.S. economy and prevent inflation from taking hold. And these bank failures just uh, has been remarkable that, right. that the interest rate increases have revealed that, that weakness in the banking system. Because yeah. they test, they stress test these banks for the opposite scenario, scenario right. but not this scenario. Right. Yet here's where we find ourselves. I know. Yeah. I know. Chrissy Roman, thank you very much. Also this morning, there is newly released dispatch audio from the moments after a deadly shooting that we were tracking all day yesterday at an Atlanta medical center. It shows how the suspected gunman's mother actually helped in the search for her son. They're now advising the active shooter, a person shot. They're advising a female shot. She's seriously bleeding, shot in the side in the back. Black male, about six feet tall, wearing a black hoodie. He's going to be the perk between ages of 20 and 25. Named Dion Patterson. Caller is still on the phone with 911. Advising is going to be her son. Police captured 24-year-old Dion Patterson after nearly eight hours of a chaotic manhunt. The attack left one woman dead, four others injured, still in the hospital. CNN's Nick Valencia is live in Atlanta outside where that shooting took.
took place. Nick, of course, this was a dramatic scene as everyone is watching this play out. The city of Atlanta was kind of in this standstill and this panic as they were looking for the suspect. What's the latest on this investigation? Caitlin, it was an absolutely terrifying day here in Atlanta. It all unfolded at this medical facility here, Northside Medical in Midtown Atlanta, during a very busy lunchtime rush. And according to police, 24-year-old Dion Patterson showed up at this facility to get some sort of evaluation after being unhappy with the treatment he was receiving at the VA. And at some point during this appointment, he became agitated and opened fire, according to police, killing a 38-year-old woman and injuring four others. All of the victims are women. Three of them are in critical condition one of them in stable condition. And according to police, Patterson then took off running and stole an unattended vehicle at a nearby gas station just a couple blocks away from here. Technology played a huge role in his capture, according to police. They say within 20 minutes of him stealing that car, the vehicle tag was spotted and it alerted authorities that he was in the suburbs just 10 miles northwest of where the shooting all took place. Ultimately, an undercover police officer found Patterson hiding in a pool area inside an apartment complex in the suburbs there and what was a very terrifying and emotional day for the city of Atlanta and beyond. And just very quickly here, Caitlin, we know, Caitlin, we know that he is expected to make his first court appearance at 11 a.m. He has been charged with four counts of aggravated assault as well as one count of murder. And uh, his mother, we heard that uh, audio played, his mother is uh, cooperating with police, as is the Coast Guard. Patterson is a former Coast Guardsman who served from 2018 to 2023 when he was discharged from active duty. They are also closely cooperating with police. Caitlin? Yeah, it's remarkable to see how, how parents are being brought into something like this, especially after we saw what happened in Louisville, Kentucky, where that was the mom also called 911. Now this situation, Nick Valencia, mm. I know that court appearance is going to happen today. Keep us updated. Thank you. First on CNN, the special counsel investigating classified documents at Mar-a-Lago is now looking into possible mishandling of surveillance video. Also, a Detroit school has closed down after a spike in flu-like cases and the death of a kindergartner. Something to keep an eye on today, a longtime Trump Organization executive and his son are both expected to testify in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. With sources telling CNN, prosecutors are planning to ask them about the handling of surveillance footage, as well as conversations that happened between employees after they were subpoenaed for that footage last summer. CNN was first to report that the footage has been of a particular interest to the special counsel, Jack Smith, and that has prompted a new round of grand jury subpoenas. Let's bring in CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed, who got this exclusive reporting along with CNN's Caitlin Polance. Paula, why is this footage of such interest to Jack Smith at this point in his investigation? So, Caitlin, this footage is essential to understanding what happened to those classified documents once they went down to Florida. Remember, they're not only investigating possible mishandling of classified materials, but Jack Smith and his investigators are also looking at any efforts to obstruct this investigation. So we've learned that his investigators have been asking about this surveillance footage after they received a subpoena for it. What happened to this footage? Was there any effort to potentially tamper with it? Now, we know that prosecutors have asked lower-level Trump Organization employees about any conversations in the organization about this footage after they received that subpoena, and we are expected to see additional witnesses today. And so this is Matt Calamari, Matt Calamari Jr. They're both expected to testify. Uh, have they testified before? Have we been aware of that? Because I haven't heard that they have before. But have they testified before? And what's the significance that people are still being brought in to testify even as of May 4th? 
Let's start with Matthew Calamari Sr. This is really significant because, as you know, this is one of Trump's most trusted, longtime advisors, Matthew Calamari Sr. Uh, he is the chief operating officer of the Trump Organization. He's also an executive vice president. And during his decades with the organization, he has primarily been responsible for overseeing security. Now, his son is also working at the organization, and he is now officially the director of security. So the fact that these two are going before the grand jury, the fact that the special counsel has gotten this far into Trump's inner circle to ask about this surveillance footage is definitely significant. And we know they are expected to be asked about the footage. And again, any conversations that occurred among Trump organization employees or other Trump aides after they received that subpoena. So these are two extremely significant developments in the ongoing special counsel investigation. And a reminder to your point that witnesses keep coming before the grand jury. This is far from over. You've been up here in New York covering the trial, uh, the defamation trial, uh, based on an alleged rape of E. Jean Carroll by the former president. What's really interesting is this new development that you have that essentially the former president's team is not going to put on a defense. Yeah, they were expected to possibly call one expert witness. This was going to be remote testimony, but they announced yesterday that they're not going to do that, citing logistical concerns and some health concerns for this particular witness. But look, that's that's a deliberate choice not to put on a defense in a case like this. It either means that they believe uh, enough jurors see the case their way or they believe they've lost and there's really no point in putting on a defense. Hmm. Now, E. Jean Carroll is still expected to put on a few witnesses today. There is no court on Friday, and we've learned that the jury will likely begin deliberating this case on Tuesday. Okay. Paula, thanks for all that reporting. We're getting a pretty dire warning from the White House this morning why they say millions of Americans could lose their jobs. Also, a mysterious illness has forced a school in Detroit to close its doors after a kindergartner died. What health officials are saying this morning, what parents need to know. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Look at that number, 8 million. That is a dire warning from the White House that 8 million Americans could lose their jobs if the government fails to raise a debt ceiling and goes into an extended default, a default lasting at least a full quarter. That is according to analysis from the White House Council of Economic Advisors. They're also warning that kind of default could cut the stock market in half. This analysis comes just days after the Treasury Secretary. Janet Yellen sent this letter to lawmakers predicting the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills as soon as June 1st. Arlette Sines is at the White House with more. Arlette, good morning to you. Uh, When I saw um, this cross yesterday, I was stunned because I think that this is the way that, you know, everyday Americans can actually digest what a lack of government um, action on this would mean for them. Yeah, Poppy, and what the White House is trying to do here is lay out the stakes of the impact a potential default would have on the American economy, as that potential date for default is less than a month away. Now, the president's top economic advisors last night outlined various scenarios about a default, and including one uh, that just relates to brinksmanship, saying that if the Congress just waited until the final minute uh, to raise the debt ceiling, that would even have serious consequences 
losses for the American economy with 200,000 jobs uh, potentially on the chopping block. That larger uh, warning is related to kind of a three month protracted uh, default if they were not able to come to an agreement. And that's where that 8 million uh, jobs lost figure comes into play. Now, this all follows Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen earlier in the week, a warning that Congress needs to raise the debt limit potentially as soon as before June 1st. She said that waiting until the last minute to reach any type of agreement could have serious uh, consequences for the American economy. But really what the White House is trying to do here, they hope these kinds of warnings will help move the needle in the discussions over the debt limit. The president expected to meet here at the White House on Tuesday with House Speaker McCarthy and other congressional leaders. But for the time being, the camps remain in their two sides, with the White House saying they are not moving off of that insistence of, of pushing for a clean debt limit hike, uh, while Republicans still are holding firm that they want to see those spending cuts. So all eyes on that Tuesday meeting as the White House is issuing these dire consequences of how the American economy could be impacted, potentially catastrophically, if they do default on their debt. Yeah, and potential real impact, even if we get close to the brink without a default. Mm -hmm. Arlette, thanks for the reporting from the White House. Also, we're tracking this story out of Detroit this morning, where a school's closed after reports of a spike in illnesses among young students. A kindergartner actually died last week. The cause of death there, we should note, has not yet been determined. But Detroit health officials say that the school will remain closed until next Monday for a deep cleaning. Joining us now, CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. Elizabeth, you know, we're still waiting to learn the cause of death here. We should be very uh, you know, upfront about the caution in that sense. But there's a big question on just how unusual it is for a child who's so young to die after these flu-like symptoms were exhibited. Caitlin, so flu-like symptoms can mean many, many different things. If we say, let's let's talk about flu. Children do die of the flu. Last flu season, about 150 children died of the flu, many of them as young as this child. So yes, children can die that young from flu or from flu-like symptoms. Two big questions, I think, is the child who died, did they have any underlying, uh, what exactly did they die of, to your point, and did they have any underlying illnesses? And the other children, how sick did they get? Caitlin? What about other schools nearby? Preventative action, since they don't totally know the source of this? You know, I think that it's really hard to know what to do if you have children in other schools. I mean, I think what you really can do is look at what they're warning parents about. So parents at this school, they're saying, look out for the symptoms. So headache, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. So if children at that school should be looking out for those symptoms, then really children everywhere should. I mean, those are symptoms that parents should be on the lookout anyways and should be talking to their doctor if their child gets really sick. And so the school is doing this deep cleaning. You know, my mom teaches at a school. The question I think that the parents will have is, is a deep cleaning, is, is disinfecting actually going to be helpful with the big picture here? What is that actually, you know, what is the real, what are other steps that they could take in this situation to ease the concerns parents understandably have? So deep cleaning and disinfection really can help quite a bit. I mean, you get in there with soap and water with the disinfectant. It's better if you know exactly what's causing these illnesses and you can select the best disinfectant. But two things. One, when children come back to school, if they're still sick, that disinfection kind of goes away. I mean, they then touch those surfaces again. Another thing is the surfaces may not, probably are not the biggest issue. As we learned with COVID, it spread person to person you know, way more effectively than it spread through surfaces. 
is. So certainly if I worked at that school or if I had a child at that school, I'd be much more concerned about person to person than I would about surfaces, although, of course, both are concerns. I mean, they really need to figure out what exactly is this germ, what, what exactly killed yeah. that child. Yeah, exactly. So and we're still waiting to hear about that, of course, thinking about those parents there. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you. If you want to be an air traffic controller, you have to act fast, apparently, like really fast. The ultra-competitive once-a-year application window is about to open our Pete Montine as what you need to know. It's so much to keep track of. Yeah. This is a tough gig. <laughs> See New York City there this morning, about 6.35 a.m. New York has actually just become the first state to ban natural gas and other fossil fuels in most new buildings. This new law banning gas-powered stoves, furnaces, and propane heating, all electric heating and cooking, will now be required in most new buildings under seven stories by 2026, taller ones by 2029. On the national level, remember not that long ago, a federal official suggested and then retracted that idea there could be a countrywide ban uh, causing outrage among Republicans. Summer travel kicks off just a few weeks from now. Airlines are facing again a major problem, an air traffic controller shortage. Aviation experts are warning this shortage could affect your plans to travel and fly this summer. Let's go to our aviation correspondent, Pete Montine, live at Reagan National, just outside of Washington. So they're trying to hire a bunch of them or what? That's right, Poppy. You know, the FAA really owning up to this shortage, which is so interesting. The air traffic control shortage is really a nationwide problem, but the FAA says the problem is so acute in some areas that it's asking airlines to operate fewer flights to some of the nation's busiest airports. A rare hiring window opens up this weekend, but that help will not come soon enough for this next major surge in travel. Warnings of not enough workers for your next trip stretch from cockpits to control towers with the FAA's own air traffic controllers now in short supply. The agency says nationwide, two in every 10 controller jobs are empty. The problem is so severe at a key facility in New York that the FAA is warning summer delays at the area's three main airports could rise by 45%. It's a chilling message that we're not able to fly. Uh, you know, the routes at, at that level because we don't have enough air traffic controls. Now, the federal government is scrambling to play catch up, opening a rare hiring window Friday. Last year, it was flooded with 58,000 applications. That's 38 candidates for every one opening. It's an important job. Absolutely, it's an important job. Uh, well, it's the backbone for aviation. Carmen Smith is one of the air traffic control students here at Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University in Florida, ready to hit submit the moment the application window opens. FAA hiring slowed down during the pandemic. Professor and former FAA official Michael McCormick says compounding the problem, the agency shuttered its training academy. Over time, this builds and that's why we have such a gap now in the training of controllers and they need to hire so many more. To see if I have what it takes, I stepped into this control tower simulator to give it a try. Three, four, five, five, Yankee, clear for departure, one, six. Students practice lining up flights for takeoff and landing, issuing fast, specific instructions with no margin for error. <laughs> it's so much to keep track of. Yeah. This is a tough gig. <laughs> 
It's probably every single time I ever hear someone say that it's such a stressful job, and I'm sitting here and I'm like, I can do it. Clearly, the students here are more accustomed to the intensity of this job than I am. It can take three years for the FAA to fully train recruits. Acting Administrator Billy Nolan insists hiring is on schedule, but it might not be fast enough to keep flights on schedule this summer. We're hiring over the next two years 3,300 additional controllers. That'll give us a net plus up of about 500 accounting for retirements and attrition. This is ultra competitive, Poppy. There is an aptitude test, a medical test, a psychological exam. There is a chance here, experts tell us, that if the FAA gets so many applications in the first day, that they might close off this application window a bit early. Something else the FAA is doing to try and alleviate these summer problems, opening up extra air traffic routes up and down the East Coast that are a bit more direct and don't zigzag. But experts tell us these are simply short-term fixes for a long-term problem and we should prepare for some bumps ahead during this summer travel season. Bobby. Okay, Pete, be honest. Are you applying for this? <laughs> Do I need to let the bureau know? I wasn't very good at it. I, I, I'm going to stick to airplanes, I think, for now. <laughs> Hard pass for me. I'd be terrible at that job. I feel like Pete's going to sneakily apply for this and he's just going to be gone one day. We're not going to have an aviation correspondent. Thank you, Pete. <laughs> Thank you, Pete. Okay, also this morning we're tracking a really sad development out of Kentucky. The Kentucky Derby race, of course, is Saturday. Everyone loves to watch it. This year's, this year's race, though, has a dark cloud hanging over it after the deaths of four horses at Churchill Downs in just the last week. Andy Scholes joins us now. Andy, I mean, my family, we love watching the Derby. We watch it every year along the Preakness and the yeah. other races. What happened here? Well, yeah, good morning, guys. Sadly, this is a big part of the sport, right? This happens quite a bit. Churchill Downs says, you know, this series of events, though, uh, highly unusual. And last Thursday, a derby contender, Wild on Ice, broke its leg while training. It, unfortunately, had to be euthanized. Another horse also suffered a similar injury during Saturday's competition. Then two horses trained by Safi Joseph Jr. collapsed and died for no apparent reason. Parents' pride collapsed and died after racing on Saturday. Chasing already died under similar circumstances after racing on Tuesday, now Joseph told Louisville's Courier Journal that blood work and labs came back normal for both horses and that their team is testing the horse's feed and supplements for irregularities. It's, it, it, yeah, I'm shattered basically, you know what I mean? Because I, I know it, it, it can't happen, like it's, it's mind boggling. Like the odds of it happening twice is, is a trillion. I run 4,000, almost 4,000 horses and it never happened like that. So it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Now, Churchill Downs releasing a statement saying in part, while a series of events like this is highly unusual, it is completely unacceptable. We take this very seriously and acknowledge that these troubling incidents are alarming and must be addressed. Now, according to Jockey Club data cited by the Courier Journal, more than 7,200 horses died due to racing between 2009 and 2021. And you got 20 horses set to race in the Derby on Saturday. Post time is 6.57 Eastern. All right, elsewhere, the NFL is set to take on the NBA on the golf course in this year's edition of the match. Reigning Super Bowl champs Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey are going to square off 
against the reigning NBA champs. Steph Curry and Klay Thompson is going to be at the Wynn Golf Club in Las Vegas. They're going to play 12 holes on June 29th in primetime on our sister channel TNT. Mahomes and Curry, they've already played in the match before. They lost in their previous uh, matches that they took part in. And, you know, guys, we've seen a lot of fun you know, matchups in this. We had Tiger versus Phil. We had that one where we had Brady and Rogers taking on uh, Mahomes and Allen. But we've never had two iconic teammates going up against each other. So this one should be tons of fun. Love yeah, that. and they're just a little bit competitive. So I can't wait to watch that. Andy, <laughs> thank you. This morning right. we're hearing from actor Jamie Foxx. This is the first time we've heard from him. He's been in the hospital for weeks for an undisclosed medical complication. Jamie Foxx is speaking out the first time, actually, since he was hospitalized three weeks ago due to what we are now told was an undisclosed medical complication. Not a lot of details, but he did post on Instagram saying, quote, I appreciate a love, feeling blessed. He does remain hospitalized in Atlanta as of this morning. We've learned he will not be able to host the upcoming season of his game of his game show, Beat Shazam. And instead, the show is announced in a statement that Nick Cannon is going to be filling in while he is out. Joining us now is the senior editor of TV at People, Brian Heltman. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you. What is going on? I think a lot of people, a lot of his fans are worried about what's going on with him. I mean, it, it's the million-dollar question. Everyone really doesn't know. There's lots of mixed things going on. There's Taraji P. Henson posting to pray for him. Mm. It is so positive that we heard from him. It's the first time we've heard from him in three weeks since mm -hmm. the incident first happened on the set of his movie. And... It's great. I mean, he he posted that message on his own Instagram. He also commented on Nick Cannon saying he'd be do he'd do a great job hosting Beat Shazam. And it's nice to see his daughter is still by his side, Corinne. His daughter is the DJ on Beat Shazam, and Kelly Osborne will be filling in on that role on Beat Shazam. Okay. Can, can we turn to the writer strike? Absolutely. Because there've been it's, it's huge deal. <laughs> yeah. But I think there's also been some really notable things in terms of the support they've gotten. Like, for example, you have the Oscar-winning directors of Everything Everywhere All at Once, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Schneider, like on the protest picket line and posting on Instagram, uh, this is from Daniel Kwan, writers are one of the foundations of this entire industry. If we don't stand with them today, it's only a matter of time before it all comes crashing down. And also calling out what he calls the corporate machine. Yeah, I mean, so many people are showing their support. Shonda Rhimes spoke out yep. yesterday. We see so many stars on the picket lines from Natasha Lyonne to Brett Goldstein, who's a writer and creator on Ted Lasso, in addition to playing Roy Kent. Mm -hmm. And uh, even Jay Leno showed up giving donuts to the to the. Which picketers. he did the last time there was a writer's strike. Right. That was 15 years ago, if you can believe it, 2007. 2007 was the longest writer's strike ever at 100 days, and it really did change the shape of television for quite some time. And we're still feeling the ripple effects because mm. it brought in so much reality television that we are still stuck with today, That's for better so or for worse. I didn't think about that. That's one of the reasons why. Yeah, it changed, it changed things because we went to unscripted TV for yeah. so long. It really shifted that landscape. There... Not everyone has been acting perfectly here. I think there's a lot of scrutiny as well on how everyone is responding to this, who's voicing their support. Some people were complaining about uh, Jimmy Fallon right. not coming to a meeting, but he then came out and said he was going to pay his writers um, for at least the next week uh, for their salary. I think the question is, and I'm curious what you hear from your industry sources, is whether or not this will actually yield change. I certainly hope that it will. It sounds like it will, but... <laughs> 
It really depends. I mean, everybody wants to get back to work. All of these writers, we saw writers from Abbott Elementary and Yellow Jackets return to work on May 1st for start writing season three of both of those shows and then had to leave after one day. They're so excited to go back to work. It's not about people who don't want to work. Right. It's about fair wages. Yeah. And so I'm... I'm certainly hopeful. It sounds positive. I don't imagine we're going to see another 100 days, but maybe. Who knows? Yeah. Brian Helpman, yeah. Thank you. Extra shout out to our writers on this show. Absolutely. Extra appreciation yes. for them this morning. Uh, brand new ProPublica report. Stunning. Another one about the Supreme Court justice. Yeah, we've been talking about this all morning. Thomas, we have been. It just crossed, right? Another story about him and Republican donor Harlan Crow what we're learning about alleged private school tuition payments for one of his family members. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. New this morning, we are learning more about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's relationship with a Republican mega-donor, Harlan Crow. ProPublica out with a new report this morning saying that the Texas billionaire paid for Justice Thomas's grandnephew to attend a private boarding school. This was in 2008. Justice Thomas had legal custody of the boy, was said to be raising him as a son. The tuition was $6,000 a month. But the entire cost that was paid for by Crow is not clear this morning. ProPublica reports Crow picked up the full tab could exceed $150,000 based on public records. ProPublica is also reporting that Thomas did not disclose these payments from Crow. He did once disclose a $5,000 contribution to the boy's education from another friend. No clear sense of why he wouldn't disclose what Crow had done. Crow's office, we should note, responded to ProPublica saying, Harlan Crow has long been passionate about the importance of quality education and giving back to those less fortunate, especially at-risk youth. It's disappointing that those with partisan political interests would try to turn helping at-risk youth with tuition assistance into something nefarious or political. I want to bring in Jeffrey Tubin, former federal prosecutor and the author of a new book, Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism, a book that we have a lot to talk about and are going to get there in a moment. Not a denial from Harlan Crow, And this seems pretty far outside the norm when it comes to these payments. What, what, what we have to remember about Clarence Thomas is he knows that there is exactly one thing that you can do to a Supreme Court justice, which is impeach him and remove him, which is not going to happen here and is never happening here. So what he has done is simply defy all the rules that are technically imposed on Supreme Court justices, which are extremely minor. It's okay to take money, but you have to report it. He obviously hasn't reported benefits of hundreds of thousands of dollars he's received from Harlan Crow, but his, his attitude, it appears, is, what are you going to do to me? And the answer is nothing. Wow, and all nine justices unified in that statement about not going before... The Ethics Committee. I mean, you know, they have put themselves not just above the law, but above other federal judges who have a set of obligations that are not exactly onerous, but the Supreme Court doesn't even doesn't even follow those. Um, Can we talk about this book? Yes, we can. So you I mean, you reported on this is about the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, Timothy McVeigh. You you covered it, the trial at the time, but we're so deeply interested in it that you've written this and reported out this fascinating book. And your premise is the conventional wisdom about Timothy McVeigh, what sort of dominated the headlines about anti-government lone wolf, is, is wrong or at least not the complete story. 
Can you talk about why and the influences? Because I think it's so relevant to today, sort of post-January 6th. If you look at McVeigh, you see that he was not a loner, not by himself. <clears throat> he was part of a movement in the, in the mid-1990s. He was part of the conservative movement. You know, he was a big Rush Limbaugh fan. He was out there with lots of other people in, in, in gun shows. And if you look at what he really cared about, I think a lot of people remember that he was uh, very outraged by what the FBI did at Waco. But he was just as outraged by what happened a year earlier when Bill Clinton right. signed the assault weapons ban. The obsession with guns the, and, and the fear that the federal government is going to take your guns away. The belief in violence. The obsession with the founding fathers. The idea that because the founding fathers rebelled against the British, we have the right to rebel against the federal government. Listen to the people on January 6th. That agenda was exactly the same as McVeigh's agenda uh, 28 years earlier. Yeah, you have a through line through all of this. But saying he wasn't a loner is interesting because what I was obsessed with in here is now Attorney General Merrick Garland's yes. role in all of this and the way he stripped parts of that away, focused only on him as this was going on simultaneously with the O.J. Simpson trial, which he was disgusted by, the obsession with it, yep. all of the way the media covered it. Right. Merrick Garland was a senior but not very top Justice Department official in the mid-90s, and he was assigned to run the Oklahoma City bombing investigation. The bomb, of course, was April 19, 1995. January 1995 was when the O.J. Simpson criminal case started. And uh, Garland had a visceral distaste for all the celebrity worship that went on, all the attention that went on to the lawyers and the personalities. And he determined that the Oklahoma City bombing case was going to be very different. And he, he um, made sure that the case was tried only in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. He is now in a very different place. He's now the, the attorney general, but he has the same attitude toward publicity. He does not want to call attention to things unless it's an actual court case. And I think that is, um, that is unfortunate because I think as attorney general, you have a platform where he could call out the, ex the, the continuing danger of right-wing extremism in this country, and he hasn't done it. Uh, to the degree he could. It, look, it's a fascinating read. You went to the University of Texas where the lead attorney for McVeigh donated all these documents, 635 boxes, a, a million documents, and you, you found things that people hadn't seen. Well, pa Poppy, you are a student of the law, an actual accredited student of the law, and you know that lawyers are not supposed to disclose their conversations with their clients, even after they're dead. That's what Stephen Jones, the attorney, did. Um, I think it was a questionable decision on... on uh, on his part, it was a tremendous boon to me as a journalist to get behind the scenes in the investigation. Plus, I got all the material that the federal government turned over to the defense mm -hmm. um, as part of the, the, their investigation. So I have the federal government as well. Yeah. How nice to see you both. How nice to see you. Jeffrey Tubin. Congratulations. You Thank you. Book after book. Not sure how you do it, but well, it's a phenomenal right. All right. Thank you. Be sure to pick up Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh, The Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. Also, we're going to speak with one of the authors of the Clarence Thomas Harlan Crow ProPublica report. It'll be a little later this hour. And right now, our coverage will continue as CNN This Morning continues right now.
Russia is now accusing the United States of being behind that drone attack on the Kremlin. The video of a purported drone strike is almost unimaginable given the location and security surrounding it. It's all organized by Russians. We don't attack Putin. We fight on our territory. Another regional bank is showing signs of trouble, PacWest Bank. It's weighing what they're calling strategic options. Shares of PacWest are plunging more than 50% after a report suggested the bank could be seeking a sale. The U.S. banking system is sound and resilient. We'll work to prevent events like these from happening again. Patterson is accused of killing one and injuring four others. The suspect that was wanted is now in police custody. He will be charged and stand trial for his crimes. What are the long-term traumatic effects of telling our children we can't protect you? In New York City, a reportedly homeless man on the subway was put into a chokehold by another rider. We cannot say what a passenger should or should not do in a situation like that. He snuck up behind him, choked him out, and the man died. This was baby number four for Derek and Kenyatta Coleman. But at their routine 30-week ultrasound, a nightmare began. The majority of all babies with this condition will get very sick immediately. There's about a 40% mortality. This team offered something new in utero. This is Miss Denver Coleman, and she's about to change the world. Good morning, everyone. You'll hear from Dr. Sanjay Gupta on that story right there yeah. at the end. It's a really good one that people will want to pay attention to. But we're going to start this morning with breaking news as Russia is now claiming that the United States is behind that drone attack that happened on the Kremlin yesterday. Of course, with zero evidence to back up that claim coming from them. The White House's national security spokesman, John Kirby, just responded to that claim moments ago, calling the allegation, quote, ridiculous. He's going to join us live here in studio in the next hour to take more questions on what happened here. The Kremlin spokesperson told reporters, quote, we are well aware that decisions on such actions and such terrorist attacks are not made in Kiev, but in Washington. And Kiev is already executing what it is told to do. Such attempts to disown this both in Kiev and in Washington are, of course, absolutely ridiculous. Of course, they have long tried to claim that it is Washington dictating right. what Ukraine should do. That's right. Denies that. And to be clear, Ukraine has vehemently denied any involvement in that attack. Moscow keeps insisting the Ukrainians were trying to assassinate Vladimir Putin. Overnight, we did see Russia unleash a wave of its own drones on Kiev and other Ukrainian cities. They had handwritten messages on them, reading for the Kremlin and for Moscow just yesterday after the drone attack. The State Department made it clear the U.S. is not helping nor urging Ukraine to launch attacks on Russian soil. Listen. I would take anything coming from uh, the Kremlin and the Russian Federation with a uh, shaker of salt. But we also have been clear and consistent, uh, as you said, that uh, about not encouraging or enabling the Ukrainians uh, to strike uh, beyond its borders. Let's bring in retired U.S. Army Major Mike Lyons for more perspective on this uh, big question. And I've watched this video. I feel like it's slow motion several times is where these drones could have come from, because Russia is claiming, of course, Ukraine's behind it. Now saying the U.S. told Ukraine to do it. 
Ukraine has, has denied this. Yeah, a couple courses of action. It, it actually could have come from somewhere, you know, inside of Russia, Russia dissidents, if that's a possibility, they could have it. But I think in all likelihood, uh, the fact that this drone had to travel at least 280 miles, get through multiple air defense platforms and systems that they had set up already in Russia, it's just not likely it came anywhere from within the boundary of Ukraine. It could have, it could have been a special op that came somewhere close to Moscow or so, but, but in all likelihood, this is more pointing towards that false flag operation. And what do you mean by that false flag operation? Russia says set this up. I mean, you look at the explosion itself, um, a slow, small drone flying towards a symbolic capital of, of, the, of Russia, uh, taken out at the right time, right over the flag, all, all these things. I, you know, as much as it's embarrassing for the Russian military and for Vladimir Putin, um, I think that they've traded off the propaganda effect that they're trying to get from us. And now they drag the United States into it. They're trying to blame the United States. Yeah, and it is pretty embarrassing for Russia, right? The fact that this could get so closely. I mean, the idea they were actually trying to target him. This is the roof of the Senate Palace. But here's my question. You don't see a lot of damage here. I mean, obviously, you can see on the, the surface of the roof. But if they were actually trying to assassinate Putin as the Kremlin is claiming, this does not seem to be what would have done that. Right. I would agree. I mean, he's got an office in this building a lot further away. This is not an assassination attempt. I mean, again, it looks like a well-scripted type of operation to show that perhaps that they're being attacked. But I mean, very clearly, there's no damage there. Yeah. And so obviously we're seeing Ukraine deny this. They've said it wouldn't further their military goals. They would allow it would allow Russia to justify strikes. And they're saying they're basically too busy defending Ukraine to actually strike inside Russia. But there are real concerns, as you heard Vedant Patel over at the State Department saying yesterday that Ukraine would try to do this because that is something the U.S. had warned them against on the anniversary of the Russian invasion. So this is a concern that the U.S. does have, that Ukraine would try something like this. It does, and they have the capability. Technically, the drone can get to that spot there. Um, and But it's wasting a lot of intel assets. It's wasting resources on the ground if they decided to do that. But Russia has just more to gain to try to think that, that uh, this attack was real because they know this counteroffensive is coming. They've got to draw attention away from that. They're doing everything they can. Perhaps they'll use this as a way to conscript more Russian soldiers. It's more in their interest to have done it in that false flag manner. Yeah, and of course, we should note Putin was not actually inside the Kremlin at that time. Major Mike Lyons, thank you for all of that. In the next hour, we're going to talk about these claims from the Kremlin, how the U.S. might respond, what their role in all of this is. From the White House's John Kirby, he'll be live in studio coming up. Also this morning, another regional bank showing signs of real trouble. We're talking about PacWest Bank confirming a Bloomberg News report that it is weighing, quote, strategic options, including maybe a sale, exploring strategic options at his Wall Street lingo for please help. The news sent PacWest stock tumbling yesterday. Shares cut in half in after hours trading. The last bank to announce it was exploring strategic options was First Republic. As you know, it failed on Monday. J.P. Morgan Chase came in, bought up most of that bank's assets. It was the third regional bank to collapse this year. And this all comes as the Federal Reserve, again, hiked interest rates by a quarter basis point. The 10th hike since March. Last March, I should say. Federal uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell did hint, though, maybe a pause is around the corner. Let's bring in our chief business correspondent, Christy Romans, and all of it. Morning. So we'll get to the, the Fed and Powell yeah. in a moment. But PacWest. Yeah. And the, and the company last night saying, essentially, the bank saying nothing's really changed since the, you know, the FDIC took over First yeah. Republic. I mean, you look at the shares down about cut in half 
overnight. Um, this year, I mean, they were at $22 a share earlier this year. They closed about six yesterday, and now they're about half that right now. So that's been a tough uh, chart there. But you look at their deposits, Poppy. I think it's interesting. Their deposits actually rose from March 20 to March 31, and the company pointing that out. The materially so aren't pulling their money they're out. They're not pulling their money out. So this is a case of Wall Street. I mean, maybe traders and investors hunting around for the next week link, which seems unfair, but that's what's happening here right and now. The, the, just before we move on to Powell, these regional banks, especially smaller, yeah. they matter for communities. I know, they lot. really do. And so the big banks get bigger and these smaller banks seem to be under a little bit more pressure uh, because the microscope is on their investments that have lost value because interest rates have risen. Right. Okay. So rate hike again, the 10th yeah. since last March. How are we going to feel this? So this is really the most important consumer story out there, quite frankly. I mean, let's start with mortgage rates. If you are buying a new home, you have seen this. Mortgage rates, a year ago when the Fed started raising interest rates, just above 4%. Now they're 6.43%. In real world terms, that means the house payment last year that was $2,600 a month is now $3,100 a month. That's a $563 difference in the house payment on the same mortgage. So that's more money. Yeah. For auto loans, same deal. Last year, 4.5% was a typical auto loan. Today, it's just about 7%. That adds about $63 more right. for the typical auto payment every single month. That's real money. And credit cards, this is where it's really the most dangerous. And I've been sort of sounding this alarm. Uh, credit card debt is so much more expensive today than it was a year ago. Rates on credit cards last year were about 14%. Now they're record highs above 20. It's 30% if you're using a store card, which is incredibly dangerous if you're carrying a balance. Some, an example, a credit card, $2,000 balance on a credit card, uh, you're going to add 11 more months to pay it off if you're, if you're paying um, that minimum payment, if you're paying uh, the minimum on that credit card. So that's just really, really dumb debt. And so be very, very careful of that. That's what Fed interest rate hikes mean. It means your borrowing is more expensive. Or just say no when they offer you a store card at yeah, the yeah. checkout for 10% off or something. Kristen Roman, thank you. You're welcome. Very much. Caitlin. Also this morning, we are tracking new audio revealing how the mother of the suspect in that deadly shooting in Atlanta yesterday at the medical center actually helped track him down. They're now advising the active shooter, a person shot. They're advising a female shot. She's seriously bleeding, shot in the side in the back. Black male, about six feet tall, wearing a black hoodie. He's going to be the perk between ages of 20 and 25, named Dion Patterson. Caller is still on the phone with 911 advising it's going to be her son. Charges happening overnight as Dion Patterson, whose mugshot you see here, now accused of killing one woman and wounding four other women. He was taken into custody after a chaotic eight-hour-long manhunt. CNN's Nick Valencia is live in Atlanta outside where the shooting happened there at that medical center. Uh, Nick, what are we hearing from police this morning? I know he's expected to appear in court, but what are they saying? Is he talking? Was What's the latest? Well, we just got some new information that gives us a potentially some insight into why he did what he did, according to police. Our affiliate WSB here in Atlanta spoke to Dion Patterson's mother. He's a suspect in this shooting. And according to the mother, he became agitated after he was denied a anti-anxiety prescription for Ativan. According to police, Patterson came here yesterday to this Northside Midtown medical facility uh, because he was unhappy with the treatment that he was being given at the VA. 
He opened fire, killing a 38-year-old woman and injuring four others. All the victims are women, three of them in critical condition, one of them in stable condition. And according to police, Patterson then took off running. He stole an unattended car at a nearby gas station. And according to police, technology really played a part in helping capture this suspect. About 20 minutes after he stole that vehicle, a license plate tag was caught on camera, alerting a, a police that he was in a northwest suburb in nearby Cobb County, just about 10 miles away. Ultimately, it was a plainclothes police officer that found Patterson hiding in a pool area inside an apartment complex after neighbors had alerted police to some suspicious activity, ending what was a terrifying nearly eight hours long manhunt here in the city of Atlanta and beyond. Later this morning, Patterson is expected to make his first court appearance at 11 a.m. local time, charged with four counts of aggravated assault, one count of felony murder. His mother is reportedly still cooperating with police, as is the Coast Guard. Uh, we should mention that Patterson was a member of the Coast Guard between 2018 to 2023 in January when he was discharged from active duty. Caitlin. Yeah, and we'll be keeping an eye on that court appearance this morning. Nick, thank you. Also this morning, we're getting a dire warning from the White House. Eight million Americans could lose their jobs if the government defaults on its debt. Congressman Adam Schiff here in studio to talk about what he thinks should and can be done at this point. Also, a New York subway rider was killed after being put in a chokehold by another passenger following what is described by witnesses as erratic behavior. The dramatic de video and the details of the investigation into his death next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. It is Congress's constitutional duty to prevent default. This is not an issue that we will neg negotiate on. The debt limit was increased three times under President Trump. It should be no different this time. Uh, but it but it is. And we are getting closer and closer to a potential default. Time is running out for Washington to strike a debt ceiling deal. The U.S. government remains in danger of running out of cash to pay its bills as early as June the 1st. That's according to the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. And that would lead to America defaulting on its debt for the first time ever. It is raising the stakes for a critical meeting set at the White House on Tuesday with Republican leaders McCarthy and McConnell both expected to attend. As you heard, though, the White House, White House standing firm insisting on a clean debt ceiling bill only. Let's talk about this and a lot more with Democratic Congressman of California, member of the House Judiciary Committee, Adam Schiff, also running for Senate for Senator Dianne Feinstein's seat in 2024. Good morning. Good morning. You're always remote. We never get you here in person. It's a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Great very, to be with much. you. Yeah. So we heard your Democratic uh, colleague on the Senate side, Joe Manchin, say last night, we are not going to default. To default. Can you actually guarantee that to the American people this morning? Uh, I don't know that I can, because I think there are enough extreme MAGA people in the House conference that would be perfectly fine uh, just to see what would happen. Uh, and just because of the notoriety, because so many of them seem to be only interested in uh, the, the notoriety of things, no matter good or bad. Um, I think they're going to take us right to the brink. And the only question is, are they really willing to destroy the nation's credit? Uh, and I just don't know. But I think the president is absolutely right. Uh, you can't uh, negotiate with people who are taking the whole economy hostage. Uh, if you do, then we're just going to go through this each and every year, every six months, where there'll be new demands. Uh, both Democratic and Republican administrations have seen the debt limit uh, increase on their watch. It's for past debt. Uh, and we're doing the responsible thing. They're supposedly governing in the House, but we're ready to put up our votes to raise the debt ceiling. We just need at least a handful of them to do the right thing. I understand you think the White House is right here and that Republicans are acting recklessly with this, and they did raise 
the debt ceiling under Trump multiple times. We've talked about that with every Republican who's been on here. But in the end, is the White House position sustainable here, given Republicans do have a majority in the House? Uh, I think it is sustainable. We ought to have a discussion wow. over, well, we should have a discussion over the budget when we do the budget. Uh, there's a proper time to be weighing, okay, what are the long-term fiscal consequences? How do we balance our budget? How do we pay down our debt? Uh, we should have those conversations, but we shouldn't have them threatening uh, to destroy the American economy. If they go through with this, it's going to mean, you know, for my home state, Californians are going to be paying a lot more for their mortgages and on their credit cards are going to be paying a lot more uh, uh, or seeing their benefits cut uh, and our creditworthiness is going to be destroyed. Uh, you just can't risk economic catastrophe because you can't get your way in other ways. But we just can't operate that way. Could you also say that the White House is risking it? No, uh, because the White House is doing what the what presidents of both parties have done, which said, which is to say, this is not what we negotiate. America pays its bills. That is non-negotiable. You want to talk about the budget? You want to talk about other things? Let's do that in the context of the budget, but not threatening the country's economy. Is there any chance Republicans, some, can be persuaded to vote with Democrats here, in your view? I think there are any number of Republicans, including uh, many in California and in New York, who are in Biden-won districts who would love a chance to not bring catastrophe to the country because they know that if they so do, yes. they're not coming back. Yeah, I think if they're given the chance. The question is, will McCarthy do the right thing and allow a vote and allow a few of their members to support it? But if you're waiting for Kevin McCarthy to do the right thing, you'll be waiting a long time. Um, let, me, let me just ask you about California and banks in particular. PacWest, another big California bank, is on the brink this morning. It may get bought up, shares cut in half overnight. This follows Silicon Valley Bank's failure. First Republic failure. All these California banks are obviously real questions about the regulators in the Fed report, particularly the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank. You voted in 2018 not to roll back some of the Dodd-Frank protections on these smaller and mid-sized banks. But a lot of your Democratic colleagues voted for that rollback. Was that an error? Absolutely was a mistake. Um, I oppose those kind of rollbacks because I think we needed stronger supervision, not weaker. And now we see uh, the detrimental impact. Now, whether that change was fully responsible, I think that the Fed report indicates that they were aware of problems uh, at SVP. Uh, so this was a, a failure of oversight. It wasn't like they didn't discover it because the regulations weren't what they should have been. Uh, and so there's, I think, a failure of oversight. There's a regulatory problem. Uh, and you have in some of these banks like SVB, uh, terrible management that essentially put their own bonuses and, and other compensation ahead of the public interest and risked their depositors and risked the economy. Switching subjects, I want to get your reaction to what ProPublica just broke this morning. The headline is Clarence Thomas had a child in private school. Harlan Crow paid the tuition. Of course, that is that uh, a billionaire real estate figure who we know was taking Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife on vacations. They've defended that. He did not report this. There was one disclosure where he reported uh, someone paying for part of the tuition, did not report what came from Harlan Crow. What is Congress going to do in response to this? Well, if these reports are accurate, it means that he was aware he should be reporting it because in the past he did report uh, things like that. Uh, it is just another powerful evidence point that there needs desperately to be a code of ethics in the Supreme Court. I think beyond that, there ought to be term limits on the court. I think we need to expand the court because they stacked it uh, by withholding a nominee from one president, a Democratic president, and then jamming down a Republican nominee. We have two justices on the court. 
that have changed the balance for a generation if it's left the way it is. But, but it begins with ethics. And clearly, now with multiple justices having serious questions raised about their ethics, there needs to be an enforceable code of ethics Who else are you for the talking Supreme about? Court. Well, you know, there are allegations of other undisclosed uh, transactions, uh, property sales. There are uh, allegations about uh, compensation by spouses of justices with people with business before the court. Uh, multiple justices now, I think, for which there are issues that ought to be investigated. Uh, and there ought to be a code of ethics. So there's a clear standard when a justice is, a justice is dealing with someone who has business before the court. And we know what should be disclosed, the justices know, and there's a mechanism to take action when they fall short. Do you actually, we just had Jeffrey Tubin on who, who said, look, these, these justices are not only placing themselves above the law. By the way, all nine of them agreed that they don't think they need to answer to anyone or to Congress in this hearing this week, but putting themselves above federal judges as well. Do you, do you think, to Caitlin's question, Congress will act and impose what it can on the court? I think Congress absolutely should act. I think there's probably more support now that it's not just about Clarence Thomas. Uh, because some of the Republicans felt that these questions, which are very legitimate, uh, were just directed at this particular justice. But now we see there's a systemic problem. And I would hope that would mean that there's more support in Congress to actually do something about it. But you're absolutely right. When you give people life tenure on anybody and you say there's no code of ethics that can touch you, there's no enforcement mechanism, then uh, you're going to see power corrupting. And I think that's what we're seeing here. House Oversight Chair James Comer is now subpoenaing records from the FBI. He has subpoena power, of course. He claims they could show then-Vice President Biden receiving bribes, allegedly, from a foreign national in exchange for policy favors. I should note the White House has strenuously denied this. We have gotten zero evidence. We haven't seen anything of what Republicans are talking about. But Comer is coming out and saying, and saying this publicly. Other Republicans are as well. Um, what do you make of that? Uh, you know, honestly, I don't think you can put much stock uh, in anything that uh, Mr. Comer has to say because his track record is very poor. Uh, when they put before these so-called whistleblowers before Congress, none of it has borne out. None of it has represented what they said it would. Uh, it's been a fiasco. And so I don't know whether this is just pure speculation that they believe there's a document of an interview. Well, there are lots of interviews. It doesn't necessarily mean there's any wrongdoing. So uh, I wouldn't give much stock to this, uh, but I'm not surprised they push out these unsubstantiated allegations. But They've been doing it for some time. Do you think the American people deserve to hear from this person and the FBI should answer these questions? Uh, you, at this point, it's just the most rampant speculation. We don't even know if there is such a document or what the document pertains to. All we have is someone's representation, and it doesn't even sound like he knows what it pertains to. So I, I don't want to speculate about it. We can't let you go without asking about Senator Feinstein. You're running for her seat, of course, in California. She said she's not going to be running for re-election. There are calls from Democrats for her to step down because she's been out with a medical issue. She has not returned. It is impeding judicial nominations and confirmations. You have not called on her to resign. Why not? Well, I'm, I'm hearing and I'm getting it all secondhand that she's coming back soon. And I would like to give her a chance to recover from shingles. And I have great respect for her. I hope she's back uh, this coming week. I hope she's back in good health, uh, because we do need her. But, but let's not forget, the Republicans refused her request to fill her seat. Uh, and frankly, if she were to On the leave, Judiciary Committee. On the Judiciary Committee. And frankly, if she were le to leave tomorrow uh, and someone new were appointed, would the Republicans seat them on the Judiciary Committee? I doubt it. 
I doubt it. Uh, and so, um, you know, this is a lot of Republican gamesmanship, taking advantage of a senator whose health is ill. But I hope she comes back and, and comes back in good health. But you said you hope she's back this week. If she's not, do you have a timeline where it does come to where she needs to step down? Uh, you know, I, I don't want to set out a timeline. Uh, that, I think, is ultimately a decision that, that uh, Senator Feinstein will make in consultation with Senator Schumer. Um, but for, for her health, I hope she's back very soon. Uh, we need to get these judges confirmed. Uh, and I think the Republicans who are making this argument, which is so disingenuous, that somehow they're ignoring Senator Feinstein's request out of respect for her, that is just absurd. Uh, and they ought to do the right thing. Because, you know, if Senator Feinstein was sitting in the Senate and one of the Republicans couldn't come back because they were ill, she'd be the first person to say, let's allow them to replace that member on the committee. Yeah, we do wish her the best. Obviously, shingles is incredibly painful, and so we are thinking of her health as well. Uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, nice to have you here in person. A lot of questions, a lot of subjects that we covered there. Thank you. Thank you. Also this morning, police and prosecutors in here in New York are investigating the death of a man. This is something everyone's been talking about after he was put into a chokehold by a fellow subway passenger. We'll tell you the details. J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon will be deposed later this month in two civil cases related to Jeffrey Epstein. We'll tell you why ahead. This morning, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is conducting a, quote, rigorous and ongoing investigation after a man who was riding the New York subway died after he was held in a chokehold by a fellow passenger. Officials have ruled Jordan Neely's death a homicide, and police have questioned and now released, we should note, the 24-year-old former U.S. Marine who was the one to restrain him. CNN's Bryn Gengrass joins us now. Bryn, what have we heard from witnesses about what exactly was happening in this incident as this took place that led up to this chokehold? Yeah, Kaylin, listen, witnesses are saying that Neely was acting erratically, but he wasn't harming anyone. So there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered here. The district attorney's office says it's going to be looking at that autopsy report that just came out. It's going to be conducting its own interviews and also looking at any video that some of which witnesses shot on that train uh, to kind of make a determination if charges are going to be filed in this case. You're going to see some of that video as well for yourself. But all of this, this fatal incident and his death prompted protests in New York City. Protesters chanting on a New York City subway platform for Jordan Neely, who was killed by a subway rider after being placed in a chokehold. Juan Alberto Vasquez, who recorded this video, says the 30-year-old launched into an aggressive rant, saying he was fed up and hungry and was tired of having nothing. Another passenger described Neely as acting erratically. Neely had not attacked anyone on the train, according to Vasquez. Despite this, a passenger came up from behind and placed Neely in a chokehold. Other passengers are seen in the video helping restrain him. NYPD officers were seen after trying to administer CPR. CNN cannot independently confirm what happened leading up to the incident and does not know how long Neely was restrained. The New York City medical examiner has ruled Neely's death a homicide. The Manhattan District Attorney says it's investigating his death. This is what highlights what I've been saying throughout my administration. People who are dealing with mental health illness should get the help they need and not live on the train. 
And I'm going to continue to push on that. Last year, New York City's Mayor Eric Adams was criticized for directing first responders and the NYPD to involuntarily commit people experiencing a mental health crisis as part of an attempt to address concerns about homelessness and crime. And in October 2022, Adams and New York Governor Kathy Hochul announced an initiative to have a stronger police presence on New York City subways after a string of violent crimes. We want to have a more significant presence visible presence. We'll do whatever, whatever we can, whatever is necessary to keep New Yorkers safe. The use of chokeholds by the NYPD came under scrutiny after the 2014 death of Eric Gardner by police. The practice was eventually banned from use by arresting officers. This incident has drawn the attention of many local officials. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is calling it murder. And New York City's comptroller Brad Lander tweeting, New York City, quote, is not Gotham. We must not become a city where a mentally ill human being can be choked to death by a vigilante without consequence. And as far as those comments, like from AOC, the mayor was on CNN last night and saying they are irres- they're not responsible at the moment. He says he kind of wants to take a pause, see how the district attorney's investigation plays out. And of course, we're going to be following that for us. Yeah, he told Abby Phillip we'll have to wait to see uh, what this investigation finds. Bryn Grass, thank you for that. Eighth graders are scoring at historic lows in history and civics. This is according to a really troubling new report. We'll explain what's behind that downward trend. Also this. So this is Miss Denver Coleman, and she's about to change the world. Yes, she is. Look how cute she is. Doctors have performed a groundbreaking surgery on the baby you see there, Denver, before she was even born. Dr. Sanjay Gupta is here with that entire fascinating story. Love that. It's often said that history repeats itself, but what if you don't know your history? According to new results from Nation's Report card, scores in the U.S. history and civics are down across the country for eighth graders. U.S. history actually scores dropped by five points from 2018 to 2022, a downtrend that actually began nine years ago and unfortunately has continued. Another negative, 2022 also marked the first ever score drop for civics classes. Only 14% of students reached at or above what is considered a proficient mark in history. It was 22% in civics. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona said in a statement that the report underscores the profound impact that the pandemic had on student learning in subjects beyond math and reading. Here's a sample U.S. history question that is deemed medium difficulty. The question is, What were the European explorers, such as Henry Hudson, looking for when they sailed across the coast and rivers of North America in the 1600s? One more. Here's an open-ended civics question that's categorized as hard. Quote, many citizens of the U.S. believe the federal government should work with other nations to develop ways to protect the environment. What are two ways, other than military action, countries can act together to address environmental issues? Those are the kinds of questions that are on these exams. If eighth graders can figure that out for the sake of the world, of course, that would be great. But this is really alarming because, I mean, it is cliche to say history repeats itself, but that is part of all of this and informing people and making sure people know what has happened in the past. Yeah, and the best leaders, I have always thought, in business or in government are people who know and understand and learn from history, right? And so what I also think the learning loss, what... Secretary Cardona said there, we have to talk a lot more about what it meant to have our schools closed. Yeah, a massive impact. Just days after the collapse of First Republic Bank, which was the second largest bank failure in the history of this nation, Los Angeles-based PacWest, that's Pacific Western Bank this morning, is on edge. Frankly, Wall Street shares 
tumbling as a result. The shares of the bank down 50 percent after hours yesterday after it said it is exploring all strategic options, including a sale. In a statement, though, on its website, the PacWest leaders write, recently the company has been approached by several potential partners and investors. Discussions are ongoing. The company will continue to evaluate all options to maximize shareholder value. The bank has not experienced, they say, any sort of -of out-of-the-ordinary deposit flows following the sale of First Republic and other news. Let's talk about what's happening here, where this goes. With New York Times reporter Lauren Hirsch, who has been covering PacWest extensively during this banking crisis. Good morning. Thanks Thanks for for having me. Why PacWest now? If their, their numbers show 75% of their deposits aren't insured as of earlier this week, and they haven't seen big outflows, meaning people, there's not, it doesn't appear that there's a run on this bank. Right. And so the big concern is, does the stock falling create a run on this bank? I mean, what we're seeing at PacWest is, I was at Milken last, this week, yeah. which was a huge conference for investors. And this was, the number one concern was short investors, basically, you know, investors who invest, invest against the stock, they were all betting against First Republic. And that is what helped drive down its shares. And so the big question there was, well, now that First Republic is gone, who's next? And it looks like they attacked PacWest and a lot of the other regional banks that on paper look kind of similar to First Republic, but one really big difference, as they said today, they haven't lost a lot of deposits. And so while the fundamental business hasn't changed, do investors attacking it create uncertainty that wasn't there? And does that almost become a self-fulfilling prophecy? And is that what this is? You think, is it a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's essentially, you know, what happened with First Republic felt like a leftover of what we saw happen with SVB. Is this just it repeating itself and this would not happen had those banks not failed? That's the big concern. I mean, banks are really, it's a confidence industry. And right now there is a lack of confidence in regional banks across the U.S. And that is what I think the government is dealing with. You know, do they have to do something a little bit more drastic, perhaps, and really get that confidence back? But I think, Lauren, you bring up such a good point because this is not like 2008, which all the leaders have said. I mean, you had some really crappy stuff in 2008, to say the least. You know, what are, credit default swaps, so many issues I could go on and on. Mm-hmm. That's not the banking system we're in today. That's not what we're talking about. So the fact that you're saying short sellers could be essentially demolishing these established U.S. banks is remarkable and troubling? It's troubling. I mean, listen, it's capitalism. There's a whole separate debate yes. on whether or not short sellers are good or bad, and, and they have gotten a lot of That's facts. fair. They have some yes. positives. They've, they've found some sure, problems. they can point out weaknesses. They can point out weaknesses. But it's a really good point, and yes, this is nothing like the 2008 financial crisis. If anything, it's like the savings and loan crisis in the 80s when, you know, it took a while for the... Ten years. Yes, exactly. So, you know, and the economy kind of hummed along. So there's no reason as of now to freak out, for lack of a technical term, but it's concerning and alarming, and you you do want to contain it and not let it spiral. Yeah, and I think regional bank executives would like people to shout that from the roof a little bit louder. How does the interest rate raise yesterday from Jay Powell play into all of this? It was widely expected. And, you know, the market, aside from regional banks, is generally up this morning. So I think they were, you know, they'd kind of baked it in. The big question now is whether or not he raises it in the future. He kind of indicated yesterday they may, you know, leave room to take a pause, which I think will give people, I think a lot of people are pushing for that. I think they don't think the economy right now can really handle any more hikes. Yeah. Well, he said it might be the last one for a while. We'll see. We'll see. That your reporting's been great on this. Thanks, Lauren, very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, Russia, without any evidence, accusing the United States of being behind a drone attack on the Kremlin. John Kirby from the White House will join us live right ahead. We'll get his response to that. 
Also, a new ProPublica investigation broken this morning reveals billionaire Harlan Crow had paid for the tuition fees for a family member of Clarence, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who was raising this grandnephew as a son. More on that investigation next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, doctors in Boston have performed a groundbreaking surgery on an unborn baby with a rare type of brain malformation in utero. Our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, spoke exclusively with the family, and he has this remarkable report. On September 14th, um, we were able to have our first ultrasound. We saw baby. We're extremely excited. This was baby number four for Derek and Kenyatta Coleman a girl named Denver, and they were excited. But then, at their routine 30-week ultrasound, a nightmare began. Saw my doctor, and, you know, we sat down, and then she shared with me that um, just something wasn't right um, in terms of the baby's brain, and also her heart was enlarged. The concern was this, that big, colorful mass you're looking at in baby Denver's brain. It's known as a vein of Galen malformation. It shouldn't exist. Simply put, this vein was getting too much blood and too quickly. Ironically, despite all of this blood going to the brain, it's not supplying brain tissue. It's just going through the malformation like a short circuit right back to the heart. Dr. Darren Orbach, a radiologist at Boston Children's Hospital, typically treats these rare malformations right after a baby is born. But too often, that can be too late. 50 to 60% of all babies with this condition will get very sick immediately. Um, For those, it looks like there's about a 40% mortality. So Orbach and his team offered Kenyatta and Derek something new, a chance to treat Denver before she was born, in utero. Now keep in mind, in utero surgery also means they had to take two patients to the operating room instead of one and they had to then very carefully thread a catheter right into the middle of that gigantic blood vessel inside a very tiny baby brain. What was the biggest risk? I would say the biggest risk is the uh, fear of injury to the brain. Uh, We are accessing the head uh, through the skull and through the dura and back into the big collecting vein. In order to accomplish this, Kenyatta was taken to the operating room and given an epidural. And then Denver was rotated into the right position and given anesthesia to keep her from moving. So after learning that she was in the ideal position, that was more confirmation for me. Like, there's no backing out of this. So babies in utero, you sort of, baby is flipped so that the back of the head is towards the abdominal wall. So this would be toward you as the surgeon here. Needle is going to go then through the abdominal wall of mom and then through the occipital bone right here. And at that point, we introduced the microcatheter through the needle and and went up through the sinus to get to the big vein. And through that needle, these tiny little coils were used to fill up the vein and change that big colorful mass into something that looks like this. The actual procedure itself took just around 20 minutes. Just two days later, Denver was born, happy, healthy, both baby and family. So this is Miss Denver Coleman, and she's about to change the world. 
So what you've just seen there is the first time a procedure like that has been performed successfully to actually try and address a, a brain malformation like that, as you saw in Baby Denver. It's fascinating stuff. I, I have to tell you, you know, the procedure took 20 minutes, uh, Poppy, but it's about five years of planning to give you some idea. Just even figuring out just how thick would the bone be right. when a baby's at that level of, of gestation? How many coils did you have to put in there? All these things, uh, you know, they, they plan meticulously ahead of time. They'd even tried this before in the years past, but this time they actually did it and it worked. We were just talking, watching your piece about how remarkable medicine is and on babies in utero, Sanjay. What, what, what yeah. kind of impact does this remarkable procedure have just on the field as a whole? Well, you know, we, we've been uh, seeing in utero operations being done successfully uh, for, for quite some time now. But I think when it comes to actually looking at these blood vessels, uh, the blood vessels are still forming in the brain, they're changing in the brain. That's sort of been, as uh, Dr. Orbach put it, sort of still a black box. That's, uh, you know, that's been the sort of area where they've had the most challenges still. Now we've seen what is possible. So I think what this means is now that you've seen it, you've seen it successfully. Uh, in medicine, they've seen it now. The world has seen it. Um, I think it just opens up a range of possibilities uh, now. So I think you're going to get a lot more of these types of procedures being performed. It's truly amazing. Sanjay, you're in Atlanta right now. And before we let you go, I want to ask you about what happened in Atlanta yesterday as we watched this chaotic manhunt after that shooting happened at a medical center. The victims who were shot were then taken to the hospital where you operate, Grady Memorial Hospital, and which yeah. I should note, it's the only level one trauma hospital in the city, actually. That's been a big point, I know, of consternation for a lot of people who live there. But what happened? How how often are your colleagues treating these gunshot hmm. victims? What is it like for them to have to deal with this on such a regular basis? Well, I'll tell you just just quickly, you know, from from the the, the background for us is when we, there's a question of a mass casualty incident. Uh, you, you may remember at first they thought there could have been up to 12 patients. We all sort of get these uh, alerts and are, are made aware. Operating rooms are put on standby. All these things go into effect. And and Grady is this is what they do. They're really, really good at this. But I think your your question's a really important one, Caitlin, because let me just give you some context here. Last year in 2022, we took care of 1,215 patients with gunshot wounds, more than 100 a month, more than three a day on average. So this was obviously sad and tragic what happened yesterday. It happens all the time. We see this all the time at places like Grady. <clears throat> there was a weekend last summer, I remember, when I was uh, operating, 17 patients came in one weekend, all with gunshot wounds. The numbers of patients with gunshot wounds have been increasing steadily and the severity of, of those types of injuries have been increasing as well. So um, we are trained, obviously, to do this. I mean, trauma surgeons, trauma neurosurgeons, what we do. Uh, but it is a increasing majority of the types of patients we care for. Yeah. And it's not just when there is a mass manhunt like there was yesterday. This happens on a regular right. basis. Sanjay Gupta, thank you for your perspective on that, for that great report. You got it. Thank you. CNN This Morning continues right now. Good morning, everyone. Top of the hour. We're glad you're with us. An explosive accusation from Russia this morning. Moscow is now blaming the United States for the mysterious drone attack on the Kremlin. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby will join us live in moments with the White House response. And it apparently was not just luxury vacations. There is a new investigative report out just a few moments ago that found that the billionaire GOP mega donor 
also paid for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's grandnephew to go to private school. We're going to talk to one of the reporters who broke that story about why it was not disclosed just ahead. Nordstrom closing its store in San Francisco. Is it because of crime? We'll talk to the city's chief economist this hour of the CNN This Morning starts right now. Russia now accusing the United States of being behind that drone attack on the Kremlin that we first reported here yesterday. Vladimir Putin's spokesperson making this claim, which we should note is a baseless one this morning. No evidence to back it up, but he did tell journalists, quote, we are well aware the decisions on such actions and such terrorist attacks are not made in Kiev, but in Washington. Kiev is already executing what it is told to do. Such attempts to disown this both in Kiev and in Washington are, of course, absolutely ridiculous. To be clear, Ukraine has vehemently denied any involvement in the attack, but Moscow insists Ukrainians were trying to assassinate Putin. Overnight, we saw Russia unleash a wave of its own drones on Kyiv and other Ukrainian cities. They had handwritten messages on them, reading for the Kremlin and for Moscow. Our CNN senior international correspondent, Matthew Chance, tracking it all for us. Matthew, such an escalation. The Biden administration has been adamant that it is not helping or encouraging Ukraine to carry out attacks inside of Russia. But these two baseless claims without evidence from the Kremlin in the last 24 hours are striking. Yeah, well, uh, it's striking, perhaps, yes, but but also sort of typical of the Kremlin uh, to say that, you know, the attacks against it are not necessarily orchestrated by Ukraine, but someone else is pulling the strings. And of course, it's the United States and it's the, the sort of broader Western alliance. I mean, this has been the narrative that the Kremlin has tried to put across from the outset since launching its war more than a year ago. What is it, 14, 15 months ago now uh, to, to conquer Ukraine? that it's doing that to stop Ukraine falling into the hands of the Western military alliance and, and specifically uh, under the sway of the, of the United States. And so, you know, through the prism in Moscow, all of this action, these dramatic images we're seeing here again of these apparent drones exploding over the dome of the, the Senate palace uh, inside the walls of the Kremlin. That was all orchestrated. The material was supplied by... Uh, the, the targeting information was given by the United States. That's the, that's the Kremlin line. Of course, as you mentioned, the United States has obviously distanced itself from this. Ukraine has as well. Um, there are a couple of other options as to, as to what might be responsible for this. And in fact, I've spoken to a former Russian MP who says he's in contact with militant groups, uh, partisan groups inside Russia, who say that they're the ones that carried out this attack. Poppy and Kate. Matthew Chance, as you learn more, keep us updated. Thank you. Joining us now, the White House's National Security Council spokesman, John Kirby. John, thanks so much uh, for being here this morning. What's your response to Russia claiming that it's actually Washington who is behind this drone attack, saying essentially they tell Kiev what to do? Uh, there's a word that comes to mind that I'm obviously not uh, not appropriate to use on national TV. I would just tell you Mr. Peskov's lying. I mean, that's obviously it's a ludicrous claim. The United States had nothing to do with this. We don't even know exactly what happened here, uh, Caitlin, but I can assure you the United States had had no role in it whatsoever. And and again, just to be clear, and I think you covered this at the beginning, that we neither encourage nor do we enable Ukraine to strike outside Ukraine's borders. Do you have any information that might indicate who was behind 
No, the drone strikes. No, no. we don't, Poppy. We really don't. I mean, uh, we're, we're trying to learn more about this best we can, uh, but we honestly just don't know what happened here. I, I think here, here's another thing that happened, though, Poppy. Sure. Uh, in just the last 48 hours or so, uh, Mr. Putin has continued to rain down on Ukraine cruise missiles and drones and conducting other kinds of air, airstrikes. And, and just yesterday killed 23 innocent civilians uh, in a residential complex that, that, that they hit, uh, likely intentionally. So that's that's also what's happening. And I don't think we uh, we can't are, forget that. Are you saying that you think this is a pretext by Russia for those actions? No, I'm not saying that. I okay. don't know. Uh, okay. we, look, it's not as if uh, just, you know, back up, you know, even longer than 48 hours ago. Uh, he over the course of the weekend, Mr. Putin was flying cruise missiles and drones, uh, mm-hmm. hitting civilian infrastructure and targets mm-hmm. uh, throughout Ukraine. It's not like he's looking for an excuse to continue to try to find uh, ways to kill innocent Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. Given all of that, Kirby, do you see Putin as a lawful and legitimate military target? Uh, look, we don't. Uh, uh, favor. We don't endorse uh, uh, strikes on individual leaders. Uh, Mr. Putin is the aggressor here. His forces are in Ukraine illegally in an unprovoked way. Uh, if he really wants to end this war, if he really wants uh, to uh, to see security there on the continent, uh, he could have his troops pull out of Ukraine right now and end this thing altogether. You said you don't favor it, you don't endorse it, but is it lawful? Would it be legitimate? I don't think it's useful for me to get into a, a legal discussion here. Uh, we, we do not uh, endorse, we do not encourage, we do not support attacks uh, on individual mm-hmm. leaders. Notable to, to hear you say that. I do want to get also your reaction to what we're hearing from um, NATO leaders. The Assistant Secretary General for NATO this morning, uh, John Kirby, is saying that, that they are... Uh, There is significant risk that Russia could pursue sabotage in terms of their latest actions to disrupt Western life, gain leverage against those nations that are providing support to Ukraine. They're talking about real concern that Russia is targeting NATO's critical infrastructure systems, even underseas cables, et cetera, as just another way to try to fight this. What is your reaction? That's something we've been mindful of and, uh, and, and watching as best we can since almost the beginning of the war, Poppy. I mean, uh, uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, the United States moved, President Biden moved so, so, so fast uh, and so decisively to shore up our, our NATO defenses on the eastern flank. We're watching this very, very closely. I'm not aware of any specific intelligence or information that would lead us to believe that that's about to happen, uh, but we're certainly monitoring this as best we can. It's not, uh, you know, just separate and distinct from that reporting. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not as if Mr. Putin hasn't already weaponized energy uh, by the way he has uh, tried to sell oil at well, well above uh, uh, market prices uh, and, and hold back the supply to try to to uh, to coerce uh, the international market. It's not like he hasn't weaponized food. He's he's done that, too. So, uh, again, all this would be sort of part of a uh, of a Russian playbook. But we just uh, I don't have any indications or mm-hmm. haven't seen anything that that's happening. John, you did say that the U.S. does not encourage attacks or endorse them on other world leaders. We do know from leaked documents that the U.S. did encourage Ukraine not to attack inside Russia on the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That came in leaked documents that were made public online. President Zelensky said this week the White House never called him about that leak. Why not? Well, what we can, I can tell you for sure, Caitlin, that uh, that as these uh, documents started to get out into the public, uh, we had multiple conversations uh, with uh, high-ranking officials in Ukraine, as you would expect that we would. Frankly, with other countries as well that were affected by these uh, by these uh, leaks, and so we did communicate uh, with Ukraine again at various levels, various agencies, and at various uh, with various officials to let them know what was going on to, and to promise that we'd keep them in, informed. 
Kirby, we've been hearing a lot from the U.S. about when this expected counteroffensive is, is going to start. What's the, what's the latest assessment in the U.S. intelligence view of when that's going to happen uh, and how much potential land Ukraine could retake? Well, I'm certainly not going to get ahead of Ukrainian plans here. I think that this would be the worst place in the world to uh, to try to divulge that, even if we had that kind of information. Uh, the, this is going to be up to the Ukrainians to decide. President Zelensky is the commander in chief. He gets to decide where his military operates and when and uh, and in what circumstances. So I'll, I'll leave it to the Ukrainians to speak to whatever future operations that they might or might not uh, conduct. What I can tell you, though, Caitlin, is uh, that uh, regardless of when or, or where and, and and what units he decides to, to use to conduct offensive operations inside his country, he's got pretty much everything he needs uh, to do that coming in the weeks and months ahead. We have provided, again, another security package yesterday of some $300 million, uh, ammunition, artillery uh, pieces as well as uh, uh, breaching equipment and logistics and sustainment vehicles. He's got about 98% of everything uh, his forces say they need to be able to conduct offensive operations in, in, the, in, the, in the spring, in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, and that's not just coming from the United States, that's coming from uh, allied and partner nations all over the world. So we've really worked hard to get them the material that they need so that if and when they step off, they can do so ready. The other thing, Caitlin, that often gets lost in this is the training we have done. Uh, we have trained multiple brigades uh, of Ukrainian soldiers outside the country over the last few months to get them schooled up on something we call combined arms maneuver, which is the kind of integrated war fighting they're going to need, uh, again, when the weather improves and when they're ready to move out. So there's been a lot of training, a lot of material deliveries, a lot of contributions to their efforts. Uh, they, are, they are ready, and of course, it'll be up to them to decide uh, how and when to execute. Don't want to let you go without asking you about Sudan. We've seen just remarkable images out of Sudan. One of our reporters, as you know, was alongside some of the evacuations from Port Sudan of Americans. Samantha Power just told Caitlin on the program, who heads USAID now, that they cannot get the humanitarian aid that is needed in unless there's a permanent ceasefire. Is that achievable, in your view? And also, can you guarantee that every American who wants to get out of Sudan can? If, uh, so on the first question, is it achievable? We certainly hope so. Uh, and that's why we're working through diplomacy to get these two generals to put their arms down and to actually abide by the ceasefires. Now, the, the ceasefires have gone through a, a couple of extensions here, and it has resulted in a decrease in the violence poppy, but certainly it hasn't eliminated it. It needs to stop so that the humanitarian assistance can get in. It's not just the United States that wants to do this. The UN does. Allied and partner countries want to get humanitarian assistance in food, water, medicine, all these are in critical short supply. It's important for these two generals, if they really do care about the future of Sudan and the Sudanese people, to put their arms down and to let this aid and assistance get in. Certainly, the United States will be uh, right there uh, with the people of Sudan, trying to make sure that they have that, that, uh, that, those uh, necessary supplies. Now, as for departures, uh, we have, I think, as you know, conducted three ground convoys, gotten out, uh, according to the State Department's estimate, uh, more than 1,000 uh, Americans. Uh, we continue to stay in touch uh, with Americans uh, to provide any kind of information uh, that they might need, any guidance that they might need, uh, should they still want to get out. I want to tell you that the population of Americans that we were in touch with uh, that wanted to get out, a much, much smaller, a fraction uh, of that number that's been floating out there of 16,000, which are largely dual nationals who, who want to stay in the country. Uh, they, they were born there, they live there, they work there, their families are there, uh, and they want to stay. But we're going to stay in touch with Americans as needed. But I will tell you, again, co conducted three uh, ground convoys uh, to get Americans out uh, successfully, and includes, that includes even yesterday. Yeah. Kirby, before we let you go, I, I mean, 
I think every interview we do with the administration going forward, especially from a national security perspective, will include this question, which is, what is the latest on the efforts to get Evan Gershkovich out of Russia as he's being wrongfully detained? Have you spoken with Russian officials and have you spoken with his family lately? Secretary Blinken talked about this yesterday. We are uh, actively, energetically uh, trying to get him released, as well as Paul Whelan. Uh, that has never stopped. There's a proposal on the table for Paul. Uh, we will urge the Russians to accept that proposal so we can get him out of there. Uh, but yes, we are in touch with the Russian officials and trying to get uh, Evan released. Uh, we want more consular access to him. I think we've only had one consular visit. Uh, we want to get more access to Evan so that uh, we can get eyes on him, get a chance to talk to him. But yes, we are actively involved in trying to secure his release. There's a proposal on the table for Paul Whelan. What about Evan Gershkovich? I would tell you we're just in, we're, uh, we're in initial conversations here trying to get the Russians to, to agree to release Evan. I don't think I would go into more detail than that right now at this, uh, at this early stage. But we have not obviously forgotten Evan. We certainly have not forgotten Paul. Uh, we're going to try to get both of these gentlemen home to their families where they belong. Just finally end uh, on asking you about Austin Tice, because we heard Secretary of State Blinken speaking about Austin Tice as well yesterday. And he yeah. said the United States is engaged with Syria, engaged with third uh, with third countries That's as well. Right. We, Kayla and I both this weekend at the White House Correspondents Dinner spoke to Deborah Tice, Austin's mom, just so for her sake. Does that indicate that she should have more hope this morning that her son is going to come home after 11 years? What I hope that indicates to her uh, and to everyone who cares about Austin uh, is that the United States has not forgotten him either. And we're going to continue to work uh, on trying to get as, the best information we can about uh, Austin. Uh, we want to see uh, we want to see this issue resolved. We want to see him home as well. Uh, so I, I hope that uh, that Deborah can can understand how, how seriously we're taking um, his uh, detention as well and and, okay. uh, and, and tr trying to get this resolved as quickly as we can. Hopefully those words can bring her some comfort this morning. Um, absolutely. We John Kirby, a so. lot of topics there. Thank you so much for your time this morning. You bet. Protesters flooding the subway stations here in New York where a homeless man died after a passenger put him in a chokehold. Now police prosecutors investigating this. We'll tell you what we know about that case. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. New this morning, ProPublica has just released a new investigative report raising more questions about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's relation, relationship with that Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow. ProPublica says the Texas billionaire actually paid for Justice Thomas's grandnephew to attend private boarding schools in Georgia and Virginia after they dug into unrelated court filings. Justice Thomas had legal custody of the boy who was identified in the report as Mark Martin. Martin lived with Justice Thomas and his wife, and they were said to be raising him as a son. What's unclear this morning is how much the bill was, but ProPublica does say that Crow picked up the full tab, according to a school administrator, a former school administrator. It could have exceeded $150,000 based on these public records. ProPublica says Thomas did not disclose the payments from Harlan Crow, what the payments for the tuition. He did once disclose a $5,000 contribution to the boys' education from another friend, but not these. Crow's office responded to this report with a statement saying Harlan Crow has long been passionate about the importance of quality education and giving back to those less fortunate, especially at-risk youth. It's disappointing that those with partisan political interests would try to turn helping at-risk youth with tuition assistance into something nefarious or political. Joining us now on set, Justin Elliott, one of the three ProPublica reporters who broke this story. And this just comes on top of all the other reporting. What did you learn from this? Yeah, I mean, so our previous reporting was about Harlan Crow uh, providing 
decades, really, of lavish travel to Justice Thomas on his private jet, on his yacht. Um, but this is really a new category. I mean, this is uh, Harlan Crow paying private school, boarding school tuition expenses for Justice Thomas's relative, uh, his boy Mark Martin, who Thomas was raising as a son, as you mentioned. Um, so, I mean, this is significant flow of money from an influential uh, political donor to a Supreme Court justice. A lot of questions, one of them being the, the disclosure rules changed at some point in time here. Would payments like this, $6,000 a month for the school, would they have been required under the disclosure rules then? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, we, we talked to a number of ethics lawyers about this, and they said that this should really properly be viewed as a gift to Justice Thomas. And any gift over a few hundred dollars in this category should have been disclosed, as you mentioned Justice Thomas actually disclosed uh, a much smaller gift of a few thousand dollars from right. another friend for the same child's education. So uh, it's totally unclear why he didn't disclose this, and, and he didn't respond to our questions about that. Even beyond the disclosure, one of the questions that I have is, can Supreme Court justices just take anything under the current standards as long as they disclose it? Because they don't even know what cases might come before them, before the court. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I have friends who work in the government who say they, they have to be careful about even letting somebody buy them lunch. Right. And, you know, members of Congress absolutely could not take gifts like this. Or if they if they could, they'd have to go through some sort of uh, pre-approval process with an eth- ethics committee. And I, I think the, a larger issue here is really Supreme Court. There's really no rules uh, besides the disclosure rules that they have to abide by. So, you know, that's kind of the larger theme here. And one of the White House ethics attorneys, a former White House ethics attorney, uh, said it's way outside the norm. Yeah, we talked to, that was actually the, the former chief uh, ethics lawyer back in the uh, George W. Bush White House who said that if he'd had somebody on the staff who'd taken this number of undisclosed gifts, you'd want to get them out of the government. So remarkable reporting. Justin Elliott, you and your colleagues have said done so much substantive reporting on this, in-depth reporting on this. So thank you for, for hustling over, breaking this this morning and joining us here on set. Thanks so much. Thanks, All right. Also this morning, we're tracking this out of San Francisco. Nordstrom, now the latest retailer to say goodbye to the city. At least 20 major stores have closed recently in the area. We're going to talk to the city's chief economist about those recent departures. And a terrifying moment caught on camera as a stroller with a baby boy strapped in starts rolling toward a busy street in Southern California. Look at that. As the baby's great aunt falls, struggles to get up, Good Samaritan Ron Nessam came running the last minute to save that little boy. Wow. I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I did nothing, of course, you know. I'm just glad I realized it and was on it, you know. Well, this just into CNN, the last of four men who escaped from that jail in Mississippi was just arrested this morning. His name is Corey Harrison, and he was taken into custody by a resident in Crystal Springs, Mississippi, in a residence, I should say there. According to the sheriff's office, a female acquaintance was also arrested. She's facing charges stemming from the investigation surrounding the inmate's escape. We will bring you more information on this as we get it. We're also learning more this this morning about an investigation that's now underway here in New York after a subway incident where a man was killed He'd been put in a chokehold by another passenger. The New York City Medical Examiner's Office has now ruled the death of Jordan Neely a homicide. But to be clear, it is not a ruling on intent or culpability. 
CNN has learned through law enforcement and military records that a former Marine is the one who held Neely in a chokehold. A witness tells CNN the victim was, quote, acting erratically before that happened. Still big questions about this. And I should note, CNN has not independently confirmed what happened leading up to that incident. We do not know how long the man was restrained and do not know whether or not he was armed. Mayor Eric Adams, excuse me, says that this comes back to mental health. And we don't know exactly what happened here until the investigation is thorough. This is what highlights what I've been saying throughout my administration. People who are dealing with mental health illness should get the help they need and not live on a train. And I'm going to continue to push on that. Merrick Adams told Abby Phillip he wanted to learn more about that investigation. Joining us now, CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. John, a lot of questions here about what happened in this particular incident, what was going on before. You have learned more about the victim here, though. So the victim is a 30-year-old man, Jordan Neely. He's got 65 encounters with the NYPD, uh, arrest for petty larceny, uh, jumping the turnstiles, uh, 16 encounters as an emotionally disturbed person, uh, but notably three assault uh, arrests for um, unprovoked attacks by punching women on the subway. Uh, now, it's important to note the person who engaged him in this couldn't have had any of that information. Um, but it shows that, you know, there are people that are in the subway, living in the subway, uh, prowling the subway, uh, unhinged individuals. And these encounters are something that every subway rider in New York knows about. They usually don't end this way. Right. Uh, and you you think about it, we were about to get on the subway the day this happened, you know, and my husband and I were talking about it. It may, makes you think again, right? But this is what millions of New Yorkers rely on. We rely on to get around all the time. The question is, where legally, where does this go? The medical examiner said this is a homicide, but that's not a legal implication. That's the manner of death. Grand jury, do you think this goes before? Does the former Marine get arrested? What do you think? Well, three ways it could have gone. One, the police could have arrested him and charged him with murder or manslaughter. Uh, but they wouldn't do that without the district attorney of Manhattan right. Alvin Bragg. Um, joining them in concurring on that charge. The district attorney wants to look at the case more. Now, what the district attorney can do after reviewing all the video and interviewing all the witnesses can decide to authorize a charge and direct the police to make that arrest. Or there's the third option, which is probably the more likely given the history of such cases, which is he'll put all the facts into a grand jury of 23 New Yorkers from Manhattan. Mm -hmm. They'll hear from the witnesses. They may hear from the suspect if he agrees to testify. Um, they'll get all the video. Uh, they'll play out all the facts. And they will ask the grand jury uh, whether to indict or not indict. Advocates for the homeless, some city officials here in New York, are calling for the arrest of that former Marine, saying that should happen. Is there a chance that happens as they're doing that, as, as they're investigating and looking at this video and hearing from witnesses? There's going to be pressure. Um, this case pressure, presses a lot of buttons, a lot of emotional buttons involving race, involving fear in the subways, involving looking at that video. And, you know, all you have to do is squint and you see George Floyd or Eric Garner. Um, so this is going to be something of controversy and emotion. The district attorney's lot in this case is to stick with the law and the process. Um, but there's going to be a lot of pressure. Really quickly, do you think there's anything more that could be done right now to make our subway safer and feel safer? Well, that's 
two different things, and that's a really interesting question because ridership is up. I know. Crime is down. I know, but we still feel. But people don't feel safe, not because of the robberies and the assaults, uh, but because of the feeling of disorder, unhinged people um, getting in your face on the train, people sleeping, people smoking marijuana. It, to a lot of people, it feels um, not in control, even though crime is down. And the mayor has repeatedly tried to sweep people out of the subways, um, get people to stop sleeping in the subways, get people to care and mental health. Um, but it's a struggle in a city that, you know, is suffering from a homeless problem, a migrant crisis, and, uh, and a resource issue. Yeah. And Abby's good question to the mayor yesterday was what people are supposed to do on the subway. Are they supposed to take matters into their own hands as the way it was what happened here? It's a good question. Well, this is really interesting about this individual whose name we don't have, the 24-year-old former Marine. A part of Marine training is this chokehold. Uh, recruits are trained in marine martial arts where they are trained, according to the marine training material I went over, by applying pressure to the carotid artery from the head and neck. The blood flow, the blood flow is restricted to the brain, causing the enemy to pass out. This is something they're supposed to use on the battlefield, um, and they're trained in that. It's not supposed to kill somebody, but we have learned from incident after incident that, that can. that can happen. A lot of questions still this morning. John Miller, thank, thank you. you. Keep us updated as you hear more from your sources. Will do. Thanks, John. All right, turning the page here, Nordstrom, saying goodbye to downtown San Francisco. The company announced this week that it will be closing both of its stores in the area come July 1st. That's when their leases expire. In a memo obtained by CNN, the retailer's chief stores officer, Jamie Nordstrom, writes this. Decisions like this are never easy, and this one has been especially difficult. But as many of you know, the dynamics of the downtown San Francisco market have changed dramatically over the past several years, impacting customer foot traffic to our stores and our ability to operate successfully. Nordstrom is not alone in this decision. In fact, the San Francisco Standard has tracked at least 20 major store closures in that Union Square area. That's really the center of downtown San Francisco since just 2020. The city is staring down a nearly $800 million budget deficit over the next two years. Let's talk about all of this with the chief economist for the city and county of San Francisco, Ted Egan. Good morning, Ted, and thank you. Good morning. Nice to speak with you. Video of robberies, you know, have gone viral in San Francisco. Is this about crime? Well, crime may be a part of it, but again, uh, similar to your previous segment about New York, the crime data for San Francisco shows that uh, property crime and violent crime are trending down. So, uh, you know, we have less crime in, in the neighborhood where Nordstrom was than we did before the pandemic. So I think maybe the perception of safety may be an issue uh, that's depressing foot traffic, but I think there are bigger forces at play. What are those bigger forces, Ted? Well, San Francisco's had a slow recovery economically from the pandemic. Um, and the biggest factor for that is that uh, people aren't coming into the offices. Offices are a very big part of the city's economy. They generate 80 percent of our GDP. Um, and, uh, you know, they're half full on a given day. Uh, with that, we're not seeing the business tourism and the conventions. And that gives downtown a kind of an empty feeling. And that makes it difficult for retailers. So if people don't come back to the office, if they're not mandated to come back by their employer, is there any way that downtown San Francisco can be revived again? I mean, Nordstrom is such a staple. They call it, you know, an anchor store, for example. We saw what happened, happened with Whole Foods in another part of San Francisco leaving. I know they're not exactly the same, 
But if people don't come back to work, what, what does it become? Well, I think we, we need to wait for the office market to adjust. And it's been a slow process. It's a slow process in San Francisco as it is in other cities. Um, but businesses still need offices. They just don't need as much office space as, as often as they did before. And the office market is going to have to adjust for that. We're going to either need to see new tenants coming in or some of that space mm -hmm. is going to be have to use for other purposes. That kind of adjustment has to take place before we get the daytime population in San Francisco back to what we're used to. Um, and then it's going to be a, a better environment for retailers. Uh, the San Francisco Chronicle had a really interesting report, and it, it, the headline was San Francisco could be in for the biggest doom loop of all. So I had not heard the term doom loop before, but this is essentially an economic freefall for the city, and one store leaving makes the next thing to leave, and it's just this bad, bad cycle. Can San Francisco avoid that at this point, or is it happening? Uh, I don't think it's happening yet. I think there, there's a risk of it happening in the future. But when we look at the economic data, we see things trending up in a way that doesn't sort of fit the doom loop narrative. Again, it's been a slow recovery. But for example, taxable sales in our downtown are, are 10 percent plus higher than they were last year. It's just been a slower recovery because we're waiting for really the future of downtown to sort itself out. But, but what if... What if the best case scenario doesn't happen? What if rents don't go down, people don't come to work? Then are you looking at an entirely new landscape, which, by the way, plays into the budget deficit issue because of, you know, taxes that are paid there? I mean, there are a number of things, difficult decisions for the city and for other uh, actors in, in San Francisco over the next few years. The city is going to face budgetary pressures because of remote work and because of um, the lack of recovery in hotels. And the transit agencies, which we rely on to make sure downtown is full, we, we can't really get to a full downtown without transit service. They're facing their own fiscal issues. Um, the issues about crime could lead into a situation where people are avoiding downtown and that makes the environment there worse. Again, I don't think that's the direction we're headed now, but that's a risk. So there are a number of things we need to get right over the next few years. But I think the idea of a doom loop is that, you know, this is... This this is a downward spiral we can't control. I think we have a lot of control. Yeah. Look, there's still a lot of wonderful things about the city of San Francisco, a place I certainly love. So I know we're focusing on the challenges here. There's still a lot of great there. Ted Egan, thank you and good luck. Thank you very much. You got it. Coming up this weekend, King Charles is the third officially, well, the third will be officially crowned. Our Americans going to tune into the ceremony. I didn't even could struggle to get his name right. We do have Harry Enten here, though, with this morning's number. Also, Missy Elliott becoming the first female rapper to get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We'll tell you who's joining her next. That was the day that Queen Elizabeth made history with the first ever live televised coronation of a British monarch. This weekend, her son, King Charles III, is going to officially be crowned in a deeply religious ceremony, kicking off a three-day celebration that will happen in the United Kingdom. With us now to preview the royal occasion, CNN senior <laughs> data reporter Harry Enton, now royal watcher as well. Um, what's this morning's number, Okay, Harry? this morning's number is 70, because this will be the first 
coronation in the United Kingdom in about 70 years. Of course, Queen Elizabeth II was in June of 1953. And I will note that this comes at a low point in Americans' opinions on the UK royal family. So, you know, about 30 years ago, we 66% of Americans had a favorable view of the UK royal family. Look where it is today. It has dropped all the way down to 27%. More Americans have an unfavorable view of the UK royal family at just 38%. And I will note, you know, this is something that I find to be fascinating. Americans on UK royal news, do we care? Just 32% of us actually give a hoot compared to 63% who say they don't care. They are sick of the royals. Really? Yes. Why? I, I guess, you know, it's just all the drama, right? Harry. Come on, people love drama. And they love it, but they're a little sick of it. I feel like the views of The Crown would refute these numbers because everyone like watches the Netflix the, show. Yeah, people yeah. are obsessed with The Crown. Um, what about the UK generally? We love our Britons, okay? Americans' Very views of the UK, look at this, 86% have a favorable view. 89% back in 1991. So this number really hasn't moved. We still love our friends across the pond. But this is, I think, one of my favorite questions. Americans who want a U.S. royal family, just 11% do. That's up from 3%. But the fact is, keep the crown across the pond. We like our republic. No monarchy involved. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the speech, Harry. Why did it go up from 3% to 11%, you think? I, I don't know why. I think it might have been that there were fewer undecideds. And we were coming off of World War II as well back then. So maybe the distance memories of someone who's too powerful, you know, that, those memories have gone adios. So I don't know. Adios. Thanks, yes. Harry. Thank you. King Harry, thank you. Season four of Barry is underway up next. You'll hear our conversation with TV legend Henry Winkler and his Emmy-winning performance in it. Can't we focus on all the stuff I did to protect you? I don't go, hey! I go, hey! Deeper voice. Hey! He became an icon as the Fonz in Happy Days. But these days, Henry Winkler is being hailed for his work on the hit HBO series, Barry, which is now in his fourth and final season. If you don't know, the show follows the story of a hitman who finds himself in the Los Angeles acting scene. Winkler plays Barry's acting teacher in the show. Yes? Gene, listen, I got to the bottom of the mountain and my cell just leapt to life. Can't you just say I got service like everybody else? Barry Berkman escaped from prison. It happened sometime late yesterday. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, he knows where this place is? Look, I highly doubt that he'd be going to Big Bear. You know, you're literally on the top of a mountain. Well, you got to come back and get me. And bring you back to L.A.? No, no, no. Listen, I just spoke with the D.A., and, and he said it was a fortunate event that you're sequestered up there. I am a sitting duck, Tom. And Henry Winkler is here with us now. Clearly, as you can see from that clip, the, the show has got some real drama to it. And it it's, does. It's you explosive. never know where the show is going to go. Yeah. Um, we're all inside Bill Hader's mind. <laughs> that is, and as long as you're comfortable, as long as you've packed for two weeks, you're fine. <laughs> and I was, are you comfortable being in Bill Hader's I mind? I am. The man is a genius. Yeah. We have two uh, creators Alec Berg, mm -hmm. the creme de la creme of comedy writing. Bill Hader, who wanted to be a director, diverted his life to Saturday Night Live, came back to what he should be doing. You're an acting teacher. I am. In the show. How did you 
I mean, I assume you've been in front of acting teachers before in your 14. life. 14. I had 14 In your real teachers. life. In my real life. And then you take that. You take your imagination of what it would be like to be a teacher. You take the notes that Alec Berg's wife took when she was in class that they based the guy that I'm playing on. You mix it up, push it in, and spit it out. And how does it come across, do you think? I have fun. Uh, I, I think that uh, I, I, uh, Bill said that I said to them uh, halfway through the first year, I said, oh, he's an <laughs> I had no idea. Halfway through the year? Yes. <laughs> I didn't know. I just thought he was, like, uh, thoughtless. People who, if they're not watching Barry, people who know you just as the Fonz or right. as the many characters you've played and see your role as an actor, assume that you've just always known that you were destined for success. Did you always know that this is going to be your life's work? I knew I wanted it to be my life's work. I didn't know that it would turn out to be so wonderful and so varied. You know, there were periods when nothing happened for eight or nine years. Um, and then I reinvented myself. You've been such a mainstay uh, on people's screens for so long through all this time. We were talking in the before we sat down about where we are in this moment in 2023, right. as obviously, you know, we're approaching an election season, yes. a presidential election. Because of given the roles that you play, the way that you intersect with these kinds of things, how do you see where we are now? I see where we are now. Uh, my, my, my thought is, imagine a catastrophe, a natural catastrophe, which we have now experienced a lot of. Human beings are on their roof. Everything that they own is underneath and destroyed, underneath the roof. A boat is coming. Do you say... What is your political affiliation? Oh, you're, that's not the right party for me. Turn the boat around. Or do you say, I need you, save me. We need each other. What the hell are we doing? You think we've lost that? I think we better listen to each other. And this, this, this kind of micro cutting ourselves uh, into shreds and separating ourselves like by an ocean is insane and untenable. But that's only a thought. One thing you said that I loved, yes. you said that one of the best gifts that your marriage brought you was your father-in-law. Yes, that's true. And you have an important message that you wanted to share right. today about. So I was invited by Apellis to join this campaign for eye care, eye health. And I know how important my eyes are. Uh, my father-in-law was a robust, six-foot, mustached dentist and funny and just a, a wonderful man who accepted me as Henry, didn't care about what I did. It was different than my own family. Slowly, I watched his sight disintegrate. And he had uh, age-related macular degeneration, which then can proceed to, this is I mean, geographic atrophy, which is um, uh, incurable. So there is a website called GA, uh, uh, Geographic Atrophy, Duh, Won't Wait. GA Won't Wait. And I say, either should you. Get your eyes checked now. You can't screw around with looking at everything on this incredible earth. It's an important tribute and lovely for you to say that. 
Thank you for your time. I'm very happy you asked me to be here. Thank you. What a fantastic guy. And I'm now been convinced by Caitlin to watch that show. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announcing its 2023 inductees. We'll tell you who made the cut. Here's a hint for one of them. But you were always on my <laughs> That's a different conversation for another day. But that, of course, was Willie Nelson's classic, Always on My Mind. He just turned 90 years old. He headlines this year's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees, the country music legend. Six Joined six other performers recently voted in to the Hall of Fame. One of those artists is the Sheryl Crow, the country rock star, has won nine Grammys during her 30-plus year career. But this year's class crosses many genres of music. Missy Elliott also becoming the first female rapper to ever be inducted in the Hall of Fame. Highly deserved. She did it in her first year of eligibility, actually. The harder side of rock and roll also represented. That epic riff, of course, Rage Against the Machine, who revolutionized the 90s rock scene by mixing hard rock and hip-hop all together, all as they injected their own political messages and activism into their music. Kate Bush, George Michael, and Spinners all ran out the other inductees in the performer category. There were six more beyond that list, including Chaka Khan and Soul Train host Don Cornelius. All of them are going to be included. It's going to be epic to watch. Can I say, um, in college, I was working for the Tuscaloosa News interning yes. for them. My first concert that I covered for them was Willie Nelson. And it was, was it? My write-up was on the front page of the paper, and it was epic. Epic byline. Yeah. Um, I love that. Okay, guys, I am on vacation tomorrow. I know. Good You'll for you. You'll be here. I'll be here. Holding it down. See you Monday. City News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.